Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Tonight we're debating whether or not Jesus died by crucifixion, and we are starting right now with Mike Jones' opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us. Mike, the floor is all yours. All right, let me share my screen here, and then I'll get going. All right, can you see that, James? Crystal clear. Hold on. Computer just froze. All right, there we go. Now I got it. All right, let me make that full screen for everybody. All right, well, thank you. Um, thank you, James. Thank you, Tahir, for reaching out to me a few months ago and asking for the debate. From your videos, you seem like a respectful and nice guy, so I hope we have a cordial conversation. With that said, let's dive right in. Did Jesus die by crucifixion? The Akhmadi position is that Jesus was crucified but somehow survived. He was taken down from the cross. The Roman soldiers assumed he was dead. Then Nicodemus, supposedly a physician, healed him using aloes. They placed the unconscious Jesus in a tomb, and then on the third day, he emerged healed and appeared to his disciples, all before going off to India to preach to the lost ten tribes of Israel. Then he died and was buried in that region. If I've misrepresented your position to here, then please correct me, but this is the understanding I got from your videos. In New Testament scholarship, this is a variation of the swoon theory, which is the idea Jesus was crucified but somehow survived the ordeal and lived a long life after. Now, to be honest, it's odd we're even having this debate, because this is not a debate mainstream New Testament scholars have. The idea Jesus survived the crucifixion is soundly rejected by well over 99% of scholars. So I'm representing the consensus position today. Scholars have noted the evidence demonstrates Jesus' death by crucifixion is an historical fact. John Dominic Crossan said, Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Gerd Ludemann said, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Bart Ehrman says, that Jesus died by crucif crucifixion is almost universally attested in our sources early and late. We have traditions of Jesus' bloody execution and independent gospel sources throughout our various epistles and other writings, and certainly in Paul, everywhere in Paul. The scholarly community is clear. Jesus did not survive his crucifixion, and the reason is because the evidence overwhelmingly confirms he died. As Ehrman said, all our early sources point to this fact. Tacitus says Jesus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, what could be more severe than death by crucifixion. Mara Barsarapian's letter says Jesus was murdered. The Talmud says that Yeshua was hanged and executed. Josephus, Lucian, and Celsus also report Jesus was crucified, and there's no hint that he survived. Surviving crucifixion was not the norm. He was thought to have survived. We should expect them to have reported it. But these are not even our best sources. All early Christian sources that speak about the crucifixion confirm that he died. Paul, our earliest Christian writer, says Jesus died. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he cites a creed he received from the early church, and scholars date this creed to just a few years after the crucifixion. The reasons are is because it's formed in a mnemonic structure with parallelism. It is also less than 50 words, and this shows it was an early creed for catechizing new Christians. 
calls Peter Cephas his Aramaic name, which suggests the creed was early, and it has independent traditions not contingent on the Gospels, like the appearance to James and an independent appearance to Peter. Gerald Collins says he doesn't know of any New Testament scholar who dates the creed after the 40s. Michael Lycona notes the consensus is that it dates to the 30s and within a few years of Pentecost. So within a few years of the crucifixion, the disciples reported Jesus had died. In the Gospels, they also confirmed Jesus died by crucifixion. But also, they report Jesus himself said he would die. Then after his resurrection, Jesus explicitly says that he died. Now, Achimedes will try to claim Jesus said he would not die when he spoke of the sign of Jonah. And I'll get to that in a bit, but let's not cherry-pick the words of Jesus. We have direct quotes in the Gospels where Jesus says he died. This should be the end of the debate right here. Early witnesses report Jesus died, and Jesus himself confirmed that. But before moving on, let's quickly survey the first century sources that report Jesus survived the crucifixion. And we're done, because there aren't any. The early sources all confirm Jesus died on the cross. Now, proponents of the swoon theory argue that Jesus only appeared to die, and they note John reported blood and water came out of his side. If Jesus had actually died, his heart would have stopped, the blood would have congealed, and water and blood should not have come out of him. Additionally, they argue crucifixion was a long, grueling process that sometimes would last for days. But the Gospels report Jesus died within hours. Surely, Aquides argued Jesus could not have died so fast. Well, they're overlooking some important facts. Medical doctors, Joseph Bergerson and Frederick Zugaby, note the facts laid out in the Gospels confirm Jesus died on the cross. First, his torture did not begin at the cross. He was arrested the night before, beaten by the soldiers of the Sanhedrin, scourged, then beaten by Roman soldiers, had a crown of thorns placed on his head. Then he had to carry his cross to Golgotha, all without food and liquid. Remember, Jesus was so badly beaten and tortured, he could not carry his cross all the way. It was expected those condemned to die to carry their crosses to the execution site. Jesus could not, which tells us he was already in a bad state, which would have contributed to a quicker death. Sure, sometimes crucifixions would last for days, but if the victim suffered in other ways before getting to the cross, that would lead to a quicker death. Seneca the Younger remarked that crucified victims would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. So depending on what torture occurred beforehand, you could have died within hours. The Jewish soldiers would have inflicted a severe beating on Jesus, given his claim to be God, which would have been considered blasphemy to them. Then Jesus was scourged. The Roman soldiers didn't go easy on him, and they would have scourged him all over. Seneca the Elder said scourging caused deep wounds and lacerated the flesh. Eusebius said scourging resulted in the innermost veins, arteries, and inward parts of the body being exposed. This would have led to a severe loss of blood. Joseph Bergerson notes scourging and blunt trauma to the chest area can cause injury to the lungs with blood and fluid collecting within the lung tissue. The lung can also collapse, which is called pneumothorax. Quote, Jesus was in a weakened condition from the effects of multiple beatings, fluid deprivation, and blood loss. More likely than not, he was in the early stages of shock prior to being lifted on the, to the cross. Bergerson notes this is the most likely cause of his death. Jesus suffered from traumatic hemorrhagic shock. This is caused by decreased circulating blood volume as a result of injury and bleeding. Extreme thirst can occur during shock, which would correlate to Jesus saying that he thirsts on the cross. Shock can occur when blood loss passes 10%. At 45% blood volume loss, reduction in blood return to the heart, and decreased resistance in the body's blood vessels will cause the blood pressure to drop to zero. The effects of shock lead to cellular deterioration in multiple organs. But also, in 2003, researchers noted that shock and blood loss 
can lead to the body losing its ability to clot blood, which is known as trauma-induced coagulopathy. Bergerson says patients with more extensive injuries have greater risk of developing coagulopathy because the extent and degree of tissue injury is a major trigger. Injured cells, cells that line blood vessels, initiate clotting mechanisms. With diffuse injury and widespread activation, the the blood clotting mechanisms, necessary blood cells, and chemical factors can be depleted and cause an imbalance between the blood's ability to clot and dissolve unnecessary clots. To recap, Jesus was severely beaten by Jewish soldiers. The language of Luke's gospel uh, suggests a harsh ordeal from temple guards. Then Jesus was handed over to the Romans. He was scourged, and they would have scourged his whole body, leading to massive blood loss. But even after that, the gospels report he was beaten again by Roman soldiers and had a crown of thorns placed on his head, which would have caused puncture wounds. Given this torture, we can infer Jesus was already in the early stages of shock. He could not even carry his cross to Golgotha, which was expected of crucified victims. This torture would have prevented his blood from clotting, and the injuries he suffered would have resulted in fluid building up around his lung and most likely would have caused a collapse lung. Thus, Jesus went into shock on the cross and died. So when John, who was at the cross, saw blood and water come out of his side, this would be expected if Jesus had died from shock. The blood could not clot, and the spear that pierced his side would have unleashed the clear fluid from his lungs and blood as well. Now, early church fathers like Origen consider this supernatural because he, like Achmedes today, also thought blood blood clots should have prevented this from occurring. But modern medical research indicates this would have been a natural result from a victim who suffered from severe beatings and shock. So it's unlikely John made this up. It's probably something he witnessed. Frederick Zugaby said, if I were to certify the cause of Jesus's death in my official capacity as medical examiner, the death certificate was read as follows. Cause of death, cardiac and respiratory arrest due to hypovolemic and traumatic shock due to crucifixion. Furthermore, let's just say by amazing luck, Jesus was not dead at this point and only unconscious. A soldier shoved a spear into his side. Given it was their job to assure their victims were dead before the bodies were removed, we can reasonably infer they aimed to pierce the heart. I don't know about you, but if I saw someone severely beaten, scourged from head to toe, then beaten again, then nailed to a cross, then had a spear shoved into their side, I'd bet my life savings they died, and no amount of ancient healing methods would revive someone from this much blood loss. I don't really care what aloes they had available. Let's be reasonable. Even if by a miracle Jesus was not dead yet, the spear in his side would have assured his death. Josephus reported that after the destruction of Jerusalem, he saw three of his friends on crosses and begged Titus to take them down. Titus did so in order they be given the best medical treatment of the day. Yet only one survived. Jesus was not given the best medical treatment and instead after suffering insurmountable torture, had a spear shoved into his side. Doesn't take a lot to realize he died. A Roman soldier would forfeit his own life if he let a prisoner escape. They would have shoved that spear in far enough to pierce the heart to verify Jesus was dead. Moreover, these soldiers were trained to kill. They knew when someone was dead. And again, early sources agree with his assessment. He died on the cross. Bergeson says to suggest that Jesus did not die when crucified is untenable. Moreover, to assure that Jesus was dead, a Roman soldier delivered the coup de grace of plunging a spear into Jesus' chest, collapsing his lung and rupturing his heart. An article from the Journal of of American Medical Association stated, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical research. Now, even if Jesus survived after the severe beatings, the blood loss, the spear going into his side aiming for his heart, he was placed in a tomb for three days where he was given no medical attention, no food, and no water. 
How was he supposed to heal and push the stone away? There is no indication in the Gospels Nicodemus was a physician. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were there to prepare his body according to traditional Jewish customs for burial. The mixture of myrrh and aloes was used to diminish the stench of a rotting corpse. It was not for preserving a corpse or attempting to revive a dying man. Frederick Zugabee says aloes and myrrhs have some minor antiseptic uh, effects, but what wouldn't begin to be of any value when one considers the extent of Jesus's injuries. Craig Keener says when spices were used, they were important not to preserve the corpse, but to diminish the stench and in practice to pay final respects to the deceased. Unless by a miracle, we would not expect Jesus to come out of the tomb alive. And if we have to posit a miracle, let's go with what Jesus said, that he died and resurrected. There's no indication Jesus survived. But if his followers saw him alive and walking around after the crucifixion, Jachmedes accept, the only logical explanation is that he rose from the dead. Not that he survived and was taking a long, well-deserved nap in a tomb. Now, Muslims who want to argue Jesus did not die often appeal to the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. To hear is argued this is Jesus claiming he would not die. To quote, when Jesus says my sign will be the sign of Jonah, it clearly means that he will actually survive like Jonah, that he will be in a circumstance whereby he would actually be put in a situation where anybody else would die, and he will survive because of God's love for him. This is not accurate for a number of reasons. First, as noted, Jesus said he would die and rise. These additional quotes from Jesus should help us understand that the sign of Jonah refers to Jesus being dead in the earth for three days, not alive. But even without these references, the sign of Jonah is not that Jesus would be alive like Jonah but that he'd be gone for three days. If the sign of Jonah was that he'd be alive in the earth for three days, it would have been stated like this. For just as Jonah was alive in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be alive in the heart of the earth. Jesus did not say that. His comparison is not that he will share all the same ontological aspects with Jonah's experience, but that he'll be gone for the same length of time. There is no way we can read the sign of Jonah as implying that he would survive the crucifixion. Tahir is aware of this argument, and in the same video, he responds by saying, Jesus was hidden on the Friday night, and he came out Sunday morning. It's two nights in a day and a half. But this objection is is a case of applying our own cultural understandings of time onto the ancient Jewish culture. In that culture, saying three days and three nights could refer to a period that was less than 72 hours and could refer to a period of Friday to Sunday. Rabbi Eliezer Benazara said a day and a night are an onah in a, a portion of time, and the portion of an ona is as the whole. In other words, you can speak of the portion of a day as the whole. We see this in the Bible. Esther said she would fast for three days and three nights before going to see the king. But then we read uh, that she went to the king on the third day, not the fourth. In Matthew 27, the Pharisees report that Jesus said he would rise, at, rise after three days. But they only requested to be made secure until the third day. R.T. France says the different phrasing of the three-day period compared with third day and the after three days is due to Septuagint wording. But in the Semitic inclusive time reckoning, these do not denote different periods as the pedantic Western reading would suggest. So the sign of Jonah does not entail Jesus had to remain in the tomb for 72 hours. He was in the tomb for part of Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. In the ancient Jewish context, one could call this period three days and three nights. So once again, the sign of Jonah refers to the time length Jesus would be gone. However, despite this, I'm not convinced Jonah even did survive his ordeal. It's naturally impossible for someone to survive in a whale's stomach, or any sea creature for that matter. The book of Jonah does not record that God miraculously kept Jonah alive. In fact, the text suggests the opposite, that he died and went to Sheol, 
Jonah says he went down to the roots of the mountains, that he called out from the realm of the dead, that he went down to the land whose bars closed on him forever. Then God brought him up from the pit. Brad Petrie says, first, when Jonah says that he cried out to God from the belly of Sheol in the pit, these are standard Old Testament terms for the realm of the dead. Second, when Jonah says that his soul fainted within him, this is another way of saying that he died. In other words, Jonah's prayer is the last gasp of a dying man. Thus, when the fish vomits Jonah out onto the land, it is the vomiting up of his corpse. Finally, with all this in mind, notice what God's first, first word to Jonah is, arise. This is the same Semitic word that Jesus uses when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and says to her, little girl, I, I say to you, arise. In other words, the story of Jonah is the story of his death and resurrection. Also, I don't think Jonah was swallowed by an actual whale or fish. I don't have much time to go into this. My friend Than at Exploring Reality has a great video on this topic. But basically, the Hebrew word for fish, dog, is a general word that can refer to any sea creature. And there are numerous allusions in Jonah that suggest the great sea creature was not a whale, but the personification of watery chaos, which the Bible calls Leviathan. In other words, the chaotic seas were personified as a sea creature called Leviathan. Basically, the book of Jonah is using Hebraic idiomatic language to say that Jonah was swallowed up by the watery chaos of the sea, and God brought him back to life after three days, which is why the text specifically mentions Sheol, the term for the underworld. Sheol was said to be below the cosmic waters. So Jonah was in the Leviathan, watery chaos, and brought down the Sheol. God brought him up from the pit after Jonah cried out, and thus he returned to life. So even if the sign of Jonah referred to Jesus sharing the same status as Jonah, which it doesn't necessarily, one can still make an argument from the text that, he, that Jonah died and came back to life, which would parallel the account of Jesus dying and rising. Finally, Achmedes claimed that Jesus could not have died because his mission wasn't over. He said he came to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. But in Judea, there were only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So Jesus had to leave Judea and travel to another place like India to finish his preaching to the lost 10 tribes. But the lost 10 tribes is a medieval myth. The Bible never mentions missing tribes. After the Assyrian takeover, we see members of the northern tribes were still there in the land. Many would have integrated with the kingdom of Judah. Luke mentions Anna from the tribe of Asher in his gospel. John mentions Levites. James notes he was writing to all 12 tribes. After the Persian takeover, they allowed all people to return to their respected homelands. This decree would have allowed all Israelites deported by the Assyrians and Babylonians to return to Israel. The Samaritans today even claim descent from the tribe of Ephraim, which is backed by genetic research. So Jesus didn't have to go find missing tribes. The descendants of Israel were still in the land. In conclusion, the evidence confirms Jesus died on the cross, which is why scholars say this is an indisputable fact in all our early sources report, Jesus died. If the Achmedi position is correct as well, this creates a theological problem because all of the early followers of Jesus thought that he died. Then later, the Muslim startup under Muhammad, and they also did not take the swoon theory. Uh, they held to something like substitution or that Jesus actually died, depending on what branch of Islam. And then they didn't get the actual belief until the Achmedi movement. This sort of turns God into either a horrible communicator or the best of all deceivers, because everyone thought Jesus died or was substituted. However, I will say I like the Ahmadi position over what I see in traditional Sunni Islam with that substitution theory nonsense, because you guys accept Jesus was crucified that he, and that he appeared to his disciples after. But it would take nothing short of a miracle to confirm the Ahmadi belief that Jesus survived the crucifixion. And if we have to posit a miracle, 
Let's go with what Jesus said would happen and said he did happen after, that he died and rose from the grave. If Jesus appeared alive after his crucifixion, the only logical explanation is he rose from the dead. Thank you. Thank you very much for that opening. We are going to kick it over to to here for his opening as well. Before I do, I want to say, folks, thanks so much for being with us here at Modern Day Debate. I'm your host, James, and want to let you know as well, if it's your first time here, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We have many more debates coming up, and you can see those debates by making sure you get notifications by clicking subscribe right now. With that, Tahir, thanks so much for being with us. The floor is all yours. Uh, thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Wonderful. So first of all, I want to commend um, Michael on his excellent research and I really appreciate that he's gone through a lot of our ideas and brought them to the fore for me, um, which makes my job somewhat easier in some respects. Um, so first, I'm just going to kick it off by going, so did Jesus die on the cross? Uh, so Jesus, peace be on him, is a beloved prophet in Islam, and we also have our own views on him. And I'm going to go through some of the, I'm going to go through my view first, then we've got a 10 minute response, I understand. So first of all, I'm going to cover, this is the outline, did Jesus claim he would be resurrected? God saved Jesus from death on the cross. Uh, where did Jesus go after surviving? Christianity based on a circular argument and how the Quran illuminates the true story of Jesus. So going into the first one. So as he himself has mentioned, I wanted to highlight the sign of Jonah. And I want to point out something that is very important, which is, I mean, You've mentioned a few things, Michael, which I will hopefully respond to in my um, actual response. But the, I think you've misrepresented to some extent the sign of Jonah here. The sign of Jonah is the opposite claim of death. So the sign of Jonah, it's clearly mentioned in the Bible, very clearly in the book of Jonah as well, that the sign of Jonah was at a time of extreme peril. Uh, Jonah, in actual fact, survived and made it out of that perilous situation. So he was in the stormy sea and a whale swallowed him you know, which is not a conventional thing to happen. And he was in the belly of the whale praying to God. This is what it says in the, in the book of Jonah. And then he was vomited out. And then he returned to the Ninevites where he was accepted. So the sign of Jonah is not about a time period. In fact, if you look at the three accounts of which um, Jesus mentions uh, the sign of Jonah, it's only the time period is only mentioned in one of them. In actual fact, it's mentioned Luke, uh, Matthew, and, uh, and there's a third location as well. I can get that up if you wish for the uh, reply section. But the sign are, are, is actually of survival because a sign is something that you know by which you know that God exists. It's, a, it's an event which demonstrates the power and majesty of God. If I go away out of town for three days and three nights, that doesn't mean I've shown the sign of Jonah. It just means I've been absent for three days and three nights. So Jesus couldn't have shown the sign of Jonah by just being absent. Okay. It's not related to the time period. And as I have pointed out to you, I have pointed out in the past. That's evidently not how long he was away. According to the Jewish custom, sunset occurred. Sunset on the previous day was actually the first day of the new day. So at best, he was away for uh, two nights and three days, if you really want to have it as an absolute stretch. But as I mentioned, the sign isn't of time period. The sign which proved um, God's existence or was a manifestation of God's attributes was that Jonah was in a perilous situation, and yet he survived. Um, and we know what the sign of Jonah is because Jonah tells us about it. So, and you, you've quoted a little bit of well as well, but I think you've somewhat misrepresented it. He said, from the deep in the realm of the dead, you're absolutely right, in the place of Sheol, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Now, what was his call for help to which God listened? His call for help was, oh God, save me. It wasn't, oh God, let me die. Let me suffer the state of death and then bring me back. 
it was to save him from death. That was an actual fact, the, the, the prayer that he made. So to say that God listened to him, but let him die when he was praying to be saved is a contradiction. And the book of Jonah makes it absolutely clear. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath me barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. This is a story of somebody who is being saved from death, death and that's always been the conventional um, belief and understanding. And you know, if you have a, a very idiosyncratic and unique way of looking at it, then that's up to you. But that's not the conventional understanding of the sign of Jonah or indeed the events of Jonah's life. And Isaiah 53, so this clearly contradicts Jesus' claim would, that Jesus, he would die. And the only way you can understand Jesus, Jesus yeah, I would die and come back to life, as you mentioned, is you can only understand it how, how Jonah mentioned it, which is from deep in the realm of the dead. To be raised from, from crucifixion, uh, to, to be raised from the dead doesn't mean to be raised from the state of death. It means to be raised from the place of the dead. Jesus was crucified. He was put in the tomb. And then he came, he appeared to come back to life, or rather he rose, his mission rose, his gained new life by demonstration that he had survived the crucifixion. Um, so this is an actual fact in Isaiah 53. We also, you know, this is a clear prophecy about what Jesus would go through and Christians use it all the time to prove it. But if you read it carefully, it's very clear that Jesus, in actual fact, is mentioned here, that he would be bruised, um, but that God would initially put him to grief, but he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Now, if you say prolong his days, what does that mean? It means to be that the, the period of time between your suffering and your death is put off, that you have a longer life. To say that his days were prolonged because he died and came back to life and then he lived a very long time is nonsense because everybody who's everybody who's who dies and then will be brought back to life on the day of judgment, we will all have eternal life, right? So to be have your days prolonged and to see your seed, which is what's mentioned in Isaiah 53, is a clear statement that Jesus would actually survive, that he would be granted a long life and see his distant progeny. But Jesus's actions ultimately speak louder than his words. Death was never part of the plan. You know, here we have in the Garden of Gethsemane, him praying, Abba, Abba, take this bitter cup of death away from me, not as I will, as, as, but as you will. And when he thought that he was dying on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God forsaken me. This is not the condition of somebody who thinks it's all going according to plan. If death was the plan all along, and he had stated it and he meant it, and indeed, if he had meant it to be death and resurrection, the question you have to ask yourself is, well, why is it that the disciples did not understand what was being said? According to you, he had uh, you know, raised many people from the dead, de from the dead, daughter of Jairus, which we'll come back to, uh, Lazarus, etc. If they had seen so many people being raised from the dead, then why was it so difficult for them to, for them to understand? So this is quite clearly, if a person prays to be saved from death, and then when they think they're dying, they say, why have you forsaken me? You can put whatever Christian spin you want on it in terms of, oh, the shadow of sin was upon him, and he was, being, he was despairing of the mercy of God, etc. But the reality is a plain reading of this is that he didn't want to die, and he didn't think it was part of the plan. And the reason is why didn't he didn't crucify death, and the simple answer is, is because to be crucified to death, according to Deuteronomy, was to be proven that you were false in your claim, that you were a false prophet, that you had spoken falsely in the name of God. And so Jesus wasn't afraid of death. It wasn't death that he was afraid of. What he was afraid of, in actual fact, was that people would reject the message which, with, with which he had been sent. That was actually, in actual fact, his main fear. So how God saved Jesus from death on the cross? I'm going to go through a few things. The length of crucifixion you've highlighted very well. Thank you very much. He was put on the cross at nine in the morning and he was taken off from about, at about 3 p.m. from what I understand. Um, 
it was a, approximately a six-hour period. And, and you make mention of the fact that, oh, well, you know, uh, Josephus had three friends on the cross and two they were taken down and two had died and one survived. And the answer is yes, well, one survived. This was an actual fact known to happen. People did survive crucifixion at times. And the important thing about this is, is you make a big deal about the fact that they were flogged, etc. The flogging was part of the crucifixion, as you'll quite rightly say. But the key point I want to make is that two people were actually crucified with Jesus, the two robbers. And both the robbers were still alive at the time when Jesus was thought to have died. So that is something that Christians have to explain away then, isn't it really? Because you had a contemporary, two contemporary individ contemporaneous individuals who were both crucified at the same time, who went presumably through the similar process. It was all this part of the same process. And they were still alive. And the, the key point of this is that Pilate, I mean, you talk about Roman guards, etc. Pilate put people to death on the regular, okay? And he was surprised that Jesus has died. And we know, we know that Pilate didn't want anything to do with it because God had sent a dream to Pilate's wife saying, do not have anything to do with that righteous man. So Pilate marveled that he was already dead. So you can say that, oh, well, it was perfectly obvious that he had died after six hours. But the guy who put people to death on the regular, he was amazed that he, they were already dead. So you can't just write that off and say, oh, well, you know, he must have therefore died. The second point to make is that his bones were not broken. Now, this is a key, the key. This is the main focus of the event in a way. When they came to Jesus, so the, the robbers who were with Jesus, they broke their legs because they were evidently still alive to hasten on their death. They gave them femoral fractures, massive trauma injuries. They died very soon afterwards. When they came to Jesus, his head was presumably slumped. He looked like he died. They, they struck him with a spear. And I'm afraid a Christian sometimes misrepresent this strike. He was not being struck to kill him. The spear wasn't there to kill him. The spear was a primitive way to check whether Jesus had, in actual fact, died by causing a painful injury to see if he would, it would elicit a response. There was no response. And as you made mention, blood and water gushed out. And, and blood does not rush out of a dead body. This is particularly what I want to emphasize. And you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm an intensive care doctor. So citing Christian medical people is kind of a bit, a bit not the best tactic with me, if I may say so. Um, I'm sure there are Christian intensive care doctors, so I'm not going to make a meal out of that. But I want to emphasize a few things. One, the, the actual Greek says that something coming out immediately, straight away, rapidly, forthwith. That's euthys, okay? And the key point I want to make here about the blood and water coming out is that Christians make out that this is the separation of the blood and plasma. Now, the simple answer is, is that when blood separates from plasma, okay, and if the water was the plasma, you wouldn't get any blood coming out because by definition, it's coagulated. So you can claim that there's a coagulopathy of trauma, but if there was a coagulopathy of trauma, that it would still be mixed with the plasma. So if the water was the plasma, then there would be no blood. And, and that's just one point. The second point is, whether you, when you cut a dead body, nothing gushes out. Nothing rushes out. Rushing out indicates a beating heart. And this is why the uh, writer of John's Gospel says that he witnessed this with his own eyes. He's giving you the hint that Jesus in actual fact survived. So the medicinal ointment you talk about as if it was a, you, you, you parrot the, uh, the point of the Jewish burial custom. It's never been the Jewish burial custom to embalm the dead. And if you look at how many pounds, 75 pounds in old money of Roman is about 35 kilograms. Nobody brings 35 kilograms to embalm somebody in a procedure which has never been part of the, the Jewish custom. Embalming was, a, was, a, was actually a, uh, an Egyptian custom. It certainly wasn't a Jewish custom. It still isn't a Jewish custom to this day. And myrrh and aloes are healing herbs. Myrrh and aloes are still used to this day. Aloe vera is used. 
as a as a healing herb for for wounds in particular and traumatic wounds. But the, but the, the big thing I always like to say, in a way, is quite funny because um, you know the greatest proof that Jesus didn't die on the cross is the fact that he didn't die, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So here Jesus appears to the to the twenty-four, and they say, "Are you a ghost?" Now, what is a ghost? A ghost is a is a person post death. Okay. And he says, no, I'm not a ghost. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as I do. And he showed them his hands and his feet. And then he said, do you have anything to eat? Now, you know, Christians always like to make out that this is the post-resurrection glorified body. The question they have to answer is, why does he still have bodily needs? If he's in an eternal body to live in heaven forever with God, what's he still eating broiled fish for? And he ate it as they watched. So this is clearly indicating a plain reading of this is a person post-assassination attempt who has the same wounds of the assassination attempt saying, no, it's really me. Can you believe it? I can't believe it either. And even if Jesus did believe he was dead, let's say Jesus believed he, he had died. The simple Occam's razor is still in actual fact that he had survived the crucifixion. So where did Jesus go after surviving? I've got seven minutes and a half, if I'm correct um, in understanding. Please let me know if that's correct. Okay, um, so where did Jesus go after surviving? The answer is that he went to seek the lost tribes of Israel. Jesus went where he said he would go. Now, you make out like there's no historical you know, facts or evidence that in actual fact, the lost sheep of the house of Israel are scattered over Tibet, Nepal, Kashmir, and Afghanistan. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus said these words, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He didn't say there will be one flock and 10 different shepherds consisting of all of his disciples going to see them. He said there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Christians have to explain this. If he ascended to heaven miraculously and has been there for 2,000 years, why didn't he fulfill his words and find those other sheep? So you can claim there's no historical evidence, but Jesus certainly believed that there were lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in actual fact, that's demonstrated in this book very nicely. But this is really the smoking gun. This is the gun that really, I mean, this, this is the nail in the coffin, I would say, to the question of whether Jesus survived the crucifixion or not. Jesus is mentioned in first century Hindu texts from 78 AD onwards. King Shalivana is meant, this is the Bahavisya Mahapurana. Hinduism has nothing to do with Christianity, has nothing to do with Islam, okay? King Shalivana was the king of this region in Kashmir from 78 AD to 102 AD. And he comes across a man in the hills. This is in Sanskrit, okay? And he asks him, he's fair-skinned, this man, a beautiful man who is golden in complexion, whose clothes are white. He said, I am the son of Ishvara. Ishvara in Hinduism isn't just any god, it's the supreme deity. He was claiming here that I am the son of God, in the same way Jesus used this metaphorical term. And I was born from a virgin. I call myself Isha Masihi, the prophet, and I've taken to prophethood. He said, I preached these principles. He talks about his religion. He says, I preached these principles in the Mlikas. The Mlikas are the foreign people in their own faith. And thus, my name is Isha Masihi, which is very similar to the word Yahshua. Masihi means Messiah. So we have, and he, and he explains a little bit more about how he was persecuted in that land, how he fled to, that, to, to, the, to the East. So we have in the first century Hindu scriptures, 40 years after the crucifixion, we have an individual whose name is a phonetic form of Yeshua Masih, Jesus the Messiah. He was persecuted in a foreign land, born of a virgin, calls himself the son of God, 
and whose religion, if you just read that text more clearly, is of speaking the truth, meditating, and worshiping the supreme being. These are aspects of no other human being in the history of the world other than Jesus Christ. So Christians have to explain what is Jesus doing in 78 AD post Hindu texts, which has nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Islam. They have to explain these findings. So the question is also, where did Mother Mary go? You know, Mother Mary suddenly up and disappeared, um, and nobody knows where she went. And the Catholics believe that the doctrine of assumption that she was assumed to have gone to heaven. And the simple answer is she went with her son. She disappeared with her son. They were on the border of the eastern, they were on the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And to get away from the Romans after surviving, he migrated east. And this is the tomb of Jesus Christ. He's buried at a place called Surenegar, which means the site of the skull, which is the same actually as the, uh, the meaning of Golgotha. And you can see a cons- on his tomb, where on his tomb, outside his tomb, there is an ancient um, imprint of the man's feet who is buried in a Jewish tradition, not in the Islamic tradition, who's buried 1900 years ago, which shows the marks of crucifixion on his feet. And I just want to finish on this point. Just This is very important, and I just want to kind of focus on this. Let's look at the facts plainly. Let's, call, let's have a guy called Jim. Let's take this away from Jesus, take it away from Christianity. We got a guy called Jim who says his miracle will be near-death experience. It will be survival. That's the sign. He prays the night before not to die. He berates people for not praying with him to, not, to, to, uh, to be saved. He has an assassination attempt on him. He has a beating heart that at the time of supposed death, an eyewitness says the blood rushed out. Rushing does not happen in, a, in, a beating, in any situation other than a beating heart. He's treated with medicinal herbs for, in isolation for 48 hours. He appears afterwards to his friends with the wounds still fresh. He denies being a ghost. He proves his body exists and has needs by eating bread and fish and asking them, showing he has appetite. He hides under the cover of darkness. He flees. His mother disappears at the same time somehow. And then he's found mentioned 40 years later in a whole different part of the world with exactly his characteristics. He has children there as per the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He dies and his tomb is found there, which shows the marks of crucifixion. And this is what I want to get at. This is kind of the most important thing for me. And I really want to emphasize this point. The only reason Christians even entertain the hypothesis of resurrection, when it's plainly a, f- a fact that if you see somebody after an assassination attempt, if I see somebody with, who, who I saw was hanged, and he has the marks of his, around his neck that uh, he was hanged, and I say to him, my God, Jim, how did you survive? How, you know, what, you must have come back from the dead. I can still see the marks around neck. He goes, no, 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 look, look, feel it. I'm not a ghost. Do you have any bread and fish with you? And you feel his neck and you can feel the indentation of the thing. You, what will you say? You'll say, my God, I can't believe you. It's amazing how you survived. That's what you would say. The only reason Christians entertain the resurrection hypothesis is because they have a presupposition that Jesus was God. But to prove that Jesus was God, they, they, they support it by saying he was raised from the dead. So to support the resurrection, they use his divinity. And to support his divinity, guess what? They use his resurrection. It's a complete circular argument. When you look at it from the plain reading of the facts of a man post-assassination attempt, giving me, citing me medical findings as to why a man rose from the dead is absurd. <laughs> well, there's no medical evidence that anybody can rise from the dead. So that's, that's the main and fundamental thing. And I want to just finish on this point. I think I've got one minute left, if that's right. How the Quran illuminates the true story of Jesus. Okay. The Quran states, and you mentioned a bit about Islam, we can go into this a little bit. The Quran and Muhammad, peace be on him, the prophet of Islam, stated the Ahmadiyya viewpoint, not any other viewpoint. No, 
no substitution theory in the Quran at all. It says in the Quran that the Jews say we killed the Messiah, son of Mary, Jesus, the messenger of God, whereas they slew him not nor crucified him, but he was made to appear to them like one. The subject of this statement is always Jesus. It is never, it is never the subject here means he was made, he, Jesus, was made to appear to them as one crucified. And it says finally in the Quran, Quran made the son of Mary and his mother a sign and gave them shelter on an elevated land of green valleys and springs of running water. And the word used there is in actual fact related to refuge given after suffering persecution. This is all found in the book Jesus in India. I recommend you go away and read it by the founder of the Ahmadiyya community who claimed to be the um, second coming of Christ within the body of Islam. And that's it. You got it. Thank you very much for that opening as well. And folks, want to let you know before we jump into the rebuttals, if you haven't yet, hit like on this video if you're enjoying it. Not for me, but for you, so that the YouTube algorithm knows what to recommend more to you. So with that, we're going to jump into the rebuttals. Thanks very much. Mike, the floor is all yours. Well, thank you for that, Tahir. I uh, appreciate the response. A lot of issues I see with that. For one thing, again, all scholars today see Jesus died. Even scholars do not even accept the resurrection hypothesis. Jesus himself said he would die. You said that he claimed he would rise from the place of the dead. Now, let me read Matthew 17. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. Okay, Mark 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. It doesn't say place of dead. It says kill. Okay, so it's very clear. Jesus said he was going to die, and after, he said he rose from the dead. With regards to the sign of Jonah, again, there's nothing in there that says it has to be about survival. This is an assumption you're adding to the text. It also doesn't say whale. The scholarly community says it most likely was a Leviathan, like the paper I cited there. So there's something you got to take into consideration. Yes, Jonah made it through a difficult ordeal. But again, it says he went down to shield. This implies death and resurrection. But again, it's about the length of time. And again, it's in the ancient Jewish context, as I cited sources, there was a motif. Three days and three nights could refer to a period from Friday to Sunday. Now, with regards to the sign of Jonah, there's one place it is also mentioned. It's in Matthew 16. Jesus brings up the sign of Jonah again. And then later in the chapter, uh, he tells his disciples, I'm going to be killed. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But turning and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. So Jesus directly said, if you deny that he's going to die, that's of Satan. That's not coming from me. That's coming from Satan. Jesus also did not say he rose from the place of the dead. Luke 24, 46 says he rose from the dead. Necron, that's what that word means. You mentioned Isaiah 53, uh, but I would agree with the scholarly community, this is not a direct prophecy. This is a typological prophecy. A direct prophecy would be something like Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, a typological prophecy is something where there is a pattern in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. In Isaiah, the suffering servant is Israel. Read Isaiah 40, Isaiah 41 directly calls it Israel. The suffering servant theme continues to Isaiah 53. Jesus typologically fulfills this as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. So often we get this wrong. A lot of the prophecies in the New Testament are typological fulfillments, okay? So you ask, why didn't Jesus, his disciples understand that when he said he was going to die? Well, look at the cultural context. The Jews of the time were inundated with the idea the Messiah would be a conquering Messiah, that he would have to defeat the Romans. If he died, that would that would have been completely divorced from their cultural background. So they were still 
inundated with that and didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Um, you mentioned Josephus and the survival of his three friends. This is not a comparison to Jesus, uh, because again, we don't have the accounts of the thieves of the cross, what torture they went through. Uh, the thieves didn't have crowns of thorns shoved into their head. They weren't severely beaten multiple times. We don't know how horrible their scourging was. Uh, Jesus was severely beaten because he was claiming to be a king in the Romans' eyes, and so they would have been quite harsh on them. You mentioned Pilate being surprised, but, let, but let's take some things into consideration. Let's go to Josephus Antiquities, book 18, <clears throat> chapter 3. So this is a different event. Pilate wants to build an aqueduct, and he's using temple funds to construct the aqueduct. Uh, the Jews protest for this, and so Pilate puts soldiers in the Roman crowd, and he's going to give the signal to cause people to be beat. Uh, so the crowds disperse. So then Josephus says, so he bid the Jews himself go away, but they boldly casting the reproaches upon him. And he gave the soldiers a signal, which was, which had been beforehand agreed on, who laid upon them much greater blows than Pilate had commanded them and equally punished those that were, uh, uh, that were riding and those that were not, nor did they spare them in the least. Uh, so, and he mentions that some of them even died. So what he basically points out is that Pilate wanted them to go easy on the people. The soldiers went far harsher than what Pilate expected. This is probably the same thing that happened for Jesus. He said, scourge them, uh, and they probably went far harsher than what Pilate had expected. We already see this theme in Josephus of Pilate giving orders and his soldiers taking things too far. The same thing happened with Jesus. Uh, in John, you mentioned the spear going in the side. It does not say blood gushed out. It just says blood and water came out of him. And I can quote, again, medical doctor Frederick Zugaby, who I quoted in my opening statement. He says, I have investigated over 25,000 deaths and I performed over 10,000 autopsies mm -hmm. over 34 years during my tenure as chief medical examiner of Rockland County, New York. And I have seen that blood uh, commonly flows out of the wounds of dead bodies, particularly in victims of violent death. Blood remains unclotted in most victims of violent death because of the increased in certain chemical factors. All right. So, again, same thing he points out that Joseph Bergerson says. Okay, that blood definitely can come out of a body, depending on how much trauma they suffered. You mentioned the water being plasma. I didn't argue it was plasma. It was probably more like, again, fluid in it around his lung tissue. Okay, you mentioned embalming, that Jesus, they were you there embalmed. No one argues Jesus was embalmed. That's not what uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were doing. They were there to cover his body with uh, spices to prevent the smell of a rotting corpse, as I cited Craig Keener on that. They do not argue he was there to be embalmed, and they were definitely not there to revive. Okay, as I cited Frederick Zugaby in my uh, opening statement, the aloes would not be enough to heal Jesus given the amount of blood loss. Okay, uh, you mentioned, you quote, put on the screen Luke 24, 36 to 43 as a, evidence that Jesus survived the crucifixion. And you say, let's just take the plain reading. But you didn't read verse 45 and 46. It says, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the, understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Again, that word necron. Doesn't say place of the dead. It says he would rise from the dead. So the plain reading is that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, if, they, if Jesus thought he had died and came back to life, okay, then what evidence do we have? If you're if you're conceding that, then literally everyone for hundreds of years, including Jesus himself, said that he died. And all of a sudden, the Aquinese come centuries later and somehow get it right. That doesn't make sense. Again, medical doctors like Joseph Bergerson and Frederick Zugaby note the facts laid out in the Gospels clearly indicates Jesus died from traumatic shock. Okay, You mentioned the Lost Ten Tribes. Again, this is a medieval myth. This came about in the Middle Ages 
after the Europeans had lost the Holy Land to the Muslims again. So they invented this myth about the lost 10 tribes. There was this far off king named Prester John who was holding them back. Uh, this myth continued throughout the Middle Ages. And when we discovered the New World, many people thought the Native Americans living over there were actually lost Israelites. We see this in the writings of the pilgrims. This is a medieval myth. I meant put scripture. You can see it in Chronicles. You can see it in Luke. You can see it in the book of James. The 12 tribes are still there. They would have integrated with Judah after the Assyrian exile. This is just what the standard scholarship was. Uh, there's no evidence Jesus went to India. Again, this has been highly critiqued by scholars like Per uh, Besco in his book, Strange Tales About Jesus, Gunter Granbold, Jesus in India. Uh, Norbert Klatt also has a book about this. Okay, And even if Jesus did go to India, this still would not prove your case that Jesus did not die. Mormons, for example, believe Jesus died before he flew off to America to teach all the white people in Mexico about Mormonism. Okay, Even if Jesus did go to India, he still could have died and rose from the dead. But again, none of that is actually relevant for the actual debate here because Jesus still died. The evidence overwhelmingly confirms that. Even if by some strange theory he went off to India after, one could still argue that he died. You ask, where was Mother Mary? Okay, well, let's just read the book of Acts. Acts 1.14 says, all these things were accord, were, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So after Jesus' ascension, Mary is still with the church in Jerusalem. She didn't go far out. The Gospel of John says that he took Mary into her house to this day. So she was still there. She never left Jerusalem. So again, the Bible debunks that myth as well. The tomb you mentioned is not mentioned in text until the 17th century. No archaeologist or scholar today has said this is the tomb of Jesus. This is just an Aquinity belief. If you want to argue for that, uh, I would need some evidence. But again, this also would not support your idea because, again, Jesus could have died, came back to life like a uh, position like Lazarus did, and then died again later. So, again, still doesn't support your argument here, which is that did Jesus die or not? Uh, you try to argue this circular reason that, say, Christians use this circular reasoning argument to say Jesus is God. No, Jesus said himself that he was God. In Matthew 7, for example, he says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, want to the kingdom of heaven. Now, that phrase, Lord, Lord, is very interesting. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek Septuagint, at times you would see places like Adonai plus the divine name, Adonai Yahweh. When that is translated into the Greek Septuagint, it becomes Lord, Lord. And as scholars like Michael Patrick Barber and Jason Staples have noted, anytime you see the phrase Lord, Lord in Greek, that's a direct, rep, a direct reference to the Tetragrammaton. And Jesus, in Matthew and Luke, says he is Lord, Lord. John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am which is a first-person representation of what we see in the Septuagint of Psalm 92, where he's, before the mountains were, you are. So there's that. There's no medical evidence. Uh, you said there's no medical evidence anyone can rise from the dead. Well, yeah, we agree. Uh, this, is a, this was a miracle. We don't say this was something that naturally happened. This is just a human-style argument. As for the Quran, irrelevant. It's not point. It's a text much later. Um, and there's also various uh, different ways Muslims interpret that. So with that, my time is up. Thank you very much for that rebuttal. And want to let you know, folks, before we jump into the next rebuttal, if you haven't yet, check out Modern Day Debate on your favorite podcast app. It is ad-free, 100%. So as you can see at the bottom right of your screen, we're available on every podcast app. Look up Modern Day Debate on your favorite podcast app and listen to debates on the go and ad-free. With that, we're going to kick it over to Tahir. Thank you very much. The floor is all yours. Thanks very much. And again, Michael, thank you for... Uh well-reasoned um, arguments and, you know, well, I disagree with you, but let's let's go through the meat of it and see where we get out to. 
the first thing I want to to note is that you didn't really address the main, you know, some of the main points. I mean, in particular, you didn't address at all the mention of Jesus in Hindu scriptures, which I appreciate is probably the first time you've seen that that quote. But I would really encourage you to go away and to look up that and and read into it. Um, the second thing is, is you know, when you, you you cite many instances where Jesus says, "Oh, he died." Well, if we want to really understand that, a simple way to understand that is an actual fact what Jesus said with respect to the daughter of Jairus, and you've actually mentioned that before. So Luke eight forty nine fifty five, there was a young girl, the daughter of Jairus, who people had believed had died. And when you know, I'll quote the Bible directly, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in there with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. So the reality is, is that you are misrep not not deliberately, I don't want to make any accusations, but I feel that you're misrepresenting what it was common parlance in in those times. And we know that Jesus spoke in parables. So if he was to say that he was was to die and be raised from the dead, that's that's and he also talks about himself having the sign of Jonah and we the classical sign of Jonah and how his people, the people he remember, we have to understand the sign of Jonah, how Jesus is. Uh, listeners would have understood the sign of Jonah. It doesn't matter what you think the sign of Jonah is. What matters is how Jesus used the sign of Jonah to explain his own future situation. So when he said that my sign will be the sign of Jonah, what did his listeners understand? The listeners would have understood that the sign of Jonah, by which God's attributes, by which his magnificence was demonstrated, was that a man at a time of peril, and when he was about to be killed, then God saved him from death. It's your post hoc interpretation 2000 years later may is, is one thing, and I'm not saying you're wrong per se. I disagree with you. But the standard understanding that Jesus' listeners would have understood and which Jesus would have understood they understood and by which he used to communicate his future condition was the sign of being close to death and being saved. So when he says, I was in Sheol, I was in, I was in the underworld and you brought me back, metaphorical language. For a state in which you have, even in English, we have this phrase, you have one foot in the grave, right? This doesn't mean you're actually literally dead and you literally have one foot in the grave. These are metaphors of language which you must understand and appreciate as Jesus spoke in parables. He used the example the daughter of Jairus. Everybody thought that she was dead. And he said, no, she is not dead. She is only asleep. So this is a kind of state of near death, which was described as dead in those days, but was not actual clinical death. And that's the thing that we're actually discussing here. The appeal to authority, which is what you've done for most of your initial presentation, if I may say so, it doesn't help. I mean, appealing to Christian or, or even non-Christian people who say that, you know, Jesus died is an irrelevancy. Pointing to, to, to medical scholars who say that, oh, well, if I was there, I would have considered him to be dead. You can just go on Google and you can look up man certified as dead comes back to life in the morgue. Okay. There are multiple instances with modern medical technology of using stethoscopes, listening for heartbeats, feeling for pulses. You know, when you have somebody lying on a bed in front of you where doctors get it wrong and once in a while you get a person coming who wakes up in the morgue three days later, look it up on Google. There's this one Spanish man who was certified by confirmed by three different doctors as dead and he was actually alive. So the idea that, you know, in the darkness, when Jesus is up there, you know, you can't see him. The sun has been eclipsed. An earthquake has happened. The Roman soldiers are worried about the condition of their family at home, right? That they, from four or five meters away, will be able to tell if somebody's dead without feeling his pulses, without listening to his chest with a stethoscope, when modern day doctors get it wrong, sometimes, right, is absurd. Okay, that, 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 that seems a bit absurd to me. If, you know, sorry, I don't want to be rude or anything, but that seems strange to me. Okay, so 
then the question is, did Jesus believe he would die? You know, Jesus's words are one thing and words can also be interpolated. We know that the Bible has been post hoc interpolated. But the question is, did Jesus believe he would die? Now, if he believed he would die, then what was he doing praying the night before saying, take this bitter cup of death away from me? What was he doing on the cross saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Oh, my Lord, my Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? These are not the words, a plain reading of this again, not the post hoc Christian interpretation filtered through the lens of Paul, just a simple reading of a man on a cross who believes that he would survive, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is clearly the words of a man who did not think that death was part of the plan. So you arguing that he said that, oh, he said this, he said this. One, it could be interpolation. Two, it could be parables. It could be metaphorical language in the same way Jonah spoke. That I was in the land of the dead. I had one foot in the grave, and yet you saved me, O oh God. Then the question is, is, did the disciples believe that he would he had died? Now, this is one particular thing I want to really focus on. You know, in Acts 21, we have the example of Paul coming back to Jerusalem after his three journeys, after he's written Romans, Corinthians, and Galatians, in which all of the modern-day creeds and, uh, and doctrines of modern-day Christianity are found and originate in actual fact. And, and, and James says to Paul what? James says to Paul, he says, there are Jews from Asia who have believed from amongst those Jews who have believed in Jesus. And I'll bring you up the specific quote in actual fact. He says, this is in uh, Acts 21, 20. 2120. 2121, sorry. But they have been informed about you. You see, brother, how many myriad of Jews there are who have believed. These are Jews who believed in Jesus, he's talking about. Jews who have believed in Jesus. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. What then the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Take these three men, be purified with them, pay their expenses, shave your heads, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law of Moses. This is an example where at the end of writing all of modern-day Christian doctrines, Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and James the Just, who knew Jesus much better, understood Jesus' teachings much better, he tells Jesus, he tells Paul that there are Jews who have believed in Jesus who are offended by your doctrines, that um, you do not need to circumcise your children, that you do not need to follow the law of Moses, that you do not need to follow the traditions of, of, of Moses anymore, and that Jesus' sacrifice is enough for you on the cross, because that's what's written in Galatians, Romans, and Corinthians. And he says to them, he says to Paul, repent. He says, publicly repent in the temple with these three men who are like you, so that all may know that all of these accusations are nothing, and you also keep the law of Moses. And what does Paul do? Does he turn around and go, hey, 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 James, I'm, uh, I, I've got to tell you, you, you've misunderstood Jesus' message. Jesus died on the cross for us. We no longer need to follow the law of Moses, actually. What does he do? He shaves his head. He publicly repents. How, how embarrassing is that? The author of modern-day Christian doctrines repents publicly, as recorded in Acts 21, of modern-day Christian doctrines. And then what happens? Those Jews who had believed in Jesus... They find him in the temple. What James warned about him about actually happens. They mob him. They nearly kill him. And then the Romans have to arrest Paul to save his life. So the idea that there was no difference of opinion about the, uh, among the early Christians about Jesus' death is clearly false. Because there clearly is. It's stated very clearly in Acts 21. 
and according to James, there was no there was no uh, New Testament which had obviated the law of Moses. And in fact, there was even a, a watered down law for the Gentiles that they still had to follow, which he describes. He says they must keep themselves from things offered to, to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Do you ever tell new Christians who become a Christian, do you tell them, oh, you become a Christian, but still you, you can't sleep with your girlfriend outside of marriage, and uh, also you can't have rare steak anymore. Um, so, uh, and if anything's been strangled, you can't have it. It's all the chicken and KFC that dies from asphyxiation. You can't have that. Do any, but do, what about if a Jew becomes a Christian? Do they still have to keep the law of Moses? Because James the Just thought that they did. So there's that as well. So finally, the question I want to end on, the point I want to end on is that we don't differ about the fact that Jesus went through the crucifixion. We, we have a different interpretation of the facts, and we have a common sense interpretation of the facts. If you see a man walking around after a crucifixion attempt, and he's got the wounds on him, he wants, he wants food. He asks for food. Even if he thinks that he came back from the dead, he didn't come back from the dead. Okay? Because that is an actual fact, a common sense Occam's razor. That's common sense Occam's razor. When you see a man post-assassination attempt with the wounds from his body, it means he survived. That is the basic, fresh understanding. And we believe that this is an actual fact, proof of Jesus' truth. We're not trying to say that Jesus was a liar. We're saying that this proof of his truth. Why? Because the initial impulse to crucify him was to prove that he was a false messiah, that he was a false prophet as per Deuteronomy. That's why he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this bitter cup of death away from me. That's his proof of his truth is that he survived when anyone else would have died. God saved his beloved one as per Isaiah 53. He prolonged his days. He saw his seed. This is in actual fact the great miracle of Jesus, which is the sign of Jonah to a T. Um, and the final point I want to emphasize is again this medical aspect. I want to emphasize this. I think that's it. I think that's me. So I'm not going to go there. Let's wrap it up there for me. Um, I hope that's okay, James. It is. With that, thank you very much, gentlemen, for those rebuttals. I want to say, folks, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. So if you haven't checked already, our guests are linked in the description box. That includes, if you listen to this via the podcast later, mm -hmm. check out our guest links. We really do appreciate them. They are the lifeblood of the channel. So check out their stuff. And even if you're like, man, I totally disagree with them, though, there's a lot of value to reading your, you could say opponent, whatever way you want to say it, reading their content or listening to it firsthand to get a true understanding of it. So check out our guest links as we really do appreciate them. And with that, we're going to jump into the five-minute rebuttals. Mike, the floor is all yours. Thank you, James, and uh, thank you for that to hear. I'll remind you that I didn't have time to address everything you mentioned last time because we have time limits. You mentioned I didn't address the Hindu scriptures, so but I'm fully aware of these. Benjamin Walker, in his book, The Hindu World, argues that actually uh, a lot of the Hindu scriptures, like the Purana texts, were actually influenced by Christian scriptures. So citing them is not really an uh, important argument, or it's a good argument, because these come much later. They're influenced by Christianity, if there is any at all. And so that could very well be where these are coming from. These are not reliable texts about what happened in Jesus. No scholar today thinks they are. So again, completely irrelevant, because again, the question is whether Jesus died in Jerusalem. We need to look at the text from Jerusalem. You mentioned about Jairus' daughter being asleep. Jesus uses this saying language when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says he's fallen asleep in uh, John 11. His disciples say, well, go wake him up. And he says, Lazarus is dead. Saying that someone is asleep was a common way to say that somebody has died. You mentioned I'm doing post-hoc interpretation. That is the swoon theory. That is exactly what this is. It's, it's a long after idea. Uh, and it just 
cherry picks the lines from Jesus. Again, Jesus said directly, Matthew 17, uh, Mark 9, Luke 18, John, John 10, 11, that he is going to die. He says he is going to be killed. Then he says he rose from the dead in Luke 24. So again, you also bring up the sign of Jonah. Again, again, this is not survival. Jesus did not say the sign of Jonah is about survival. This is reading way too much in it. It's about the time length he'll be gone, and that fits in with the cultural context. Okay. Again, Jesus said he will be killed in Matthew 16. You said I was appealing to authority. Uh, appealing to authority is not a fallacy. It's a fallacy if I appeal to somebody that's not a scholar. I appeal directly to New Testament scholars. That is not fallacious. That is what every single scholar does. You appeal to people who know what they're talking about, who have the degrees, who've written on this subject. I could just say you're appealing to authority if you ever quote the Achmedi founder again. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, modern doctors sometimes get it wrong. Uh, but again, were those people that they declared dead, scourged, beaten, hung on a cross, had severe losses of blood? No. No, they were not. you got to look at the specific evidence for Jesus, and medical doctors agree. I cited several that say he died from traumatic shock. Uh, you said that the Bible could have been interpolated. Well, then how do you know which parts were interpolated and how, how, which parts weren't? If you say the part that confirm your beliefs were not, oh, then that's just arguing in a circle. Okay, you cannot use the Gospel of John like you have or the Gospels to argue your position and then just dismiss all the parts you say were interpolated. You mentioned Jesus crying, my God, my God, why is thou forsaking me on the cross? But he's quoting Psalm 22, which is actually a psalm of victory. Craig Keener says that Jesus uttered this complaint of righteousness, Psalm 22, verse 1, might well suggest early Christians that he participated in humanity's ultimate alienation from God in experiencing the pain of death. Although Christians are not likely to have invented such a cry, they undoubtedly found great significance in the use of the psalm. Uh, he goes on to point out that um, this does not imply that he feel that he was forsaken. It implies a feeling of forsaken. Okay, but the psalm he's actually citing is actually a psalm of triumph, being brought through and winning and ultimately in the end. It's like if I told you, okay, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. Okay, I'm, I'm not telling you I'm going to the best restaurant. And that's actually a line from a song called Spirit in the Sky about going to heaven. So you got to take the song lyric in context with the song. And likewise, you got to take Jesus' quote of Psalm 22 in context of the whole song. Uh, you mentioned Acts 21, that Paul was and James were somehow in disagreement. Um, no, verse 25 shows that Paul and James are on the same page. Uh, notice what he says that James says to Paul. He says, we, we've been told that you've been telling Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Paul never said that. Read 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if you're of the circumcised, stay among the circumcised. If you're of the uncircumcised, stay there. Then, so then James gets down to verse 25 and he says, as for the Gentiles, we've sent them a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. The same conclusion they came to in Acts 15 when they agreed Gentiles do not have to become Jews to become Christians. And even if they did disagree, that's not evidence that somehow James thought that Jesus survived the crucifixion. They're clearly talking about something else. Uh, you also mentioned this human style reasoning that if you see him alive, you just should conclude, regardless of what even Jesus said, that he survived. Well, I mean, if, that, if that's the case, we're just going to, this is just getting ad hoc. We're dismissing all the evidence, all the evidence to just sort of confirm. Even Jesus himself cannot say what actually happened. He's wrong. And Achmedi founder, centuries later, is the only guy that's right. This is getting incredibly ad hoc. We're just dismissing away all the evidence if it doesn't fit the bill. Uh, with that, my time's up, and I'll turn it over to here. Uh, but thank you, and I look forward to the open dialogue.
Thanks so much, Mike. And we'll kick it over for our last five-minute rebuttal before that open dialogue. If you haven't yet, hit that like. Folks, we are only 28 away from 400 right now. We appreciate that. And with that, thank you very much to hear. The floor is all yours. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yep. I kind of, my audio was dropping, so I, I, I tweaked a little bit. I hope it doesn't drop anymore. You got it. Okay. Clear now. Let's start. Thanks very much. So thank you again, Michael, for, for, for your points. Um, so the first point I want to make just from the outset is that, you know, the Ahmadiyya founder, he was born in 1835, died in 1908, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who, who claimed to be the true second coming of Christ and to explain the actual reality of his life and death and that Jesus died in, in Kashmir. And he identified his tomb as well in his book, Jesus in India. But he didn't say that this is a new idea. He actually said that this is the original understanding of the Christians and that in actual fact, this was resur this <laughs> resurrected in a sense. This concept was demonstrated best by the Quran. And I, and I showed you the verse which clearly states in the Quran that they did not kill him. You know, uh, in chapter four of the Quran, they did not kill him uh, through qatalu, means to kill with a sword or to kill, but to slay. Nor did they kill him by crucifixion or crucify him to death in a sense and finish him through crucifixion. Um, but he was made to appear to them. He appeared to them as so. Now that's clearly, that's, that's the Ahmadi position. And that's the original Quranic position. That's the original position of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And we believe that the Quran wasn't written by Muhammad, but it was dictated to God, uh, dictated by God to Muhammad, who then recited his companions who wrote it down. The sign of Jonah, again, I, I want to go back and just emphasize this point. It's not the length of time. If I go on a holiday for three days and three nights, I haven't shown the sign. What is it that makes it a sign? You know, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, the sign of Jonah is mentioned, you know, wicked and adulterous nation seeketh the sign, but no sign shall be shown to them except the sign of Jonah, right? It's mentioned in Luke 11, it's mentioned in Matthew 12, and it's mentioned in Matthew 16. And only in one of those particular times is the length of time mentioned. The sign, I want to go back to this. The sign is a person who should have died and was in a situation akin to death or very close to death and who is then survives. And again, you, you cite the daughter of Jairus. And this time you take Jesus's very clear words. She is not dead. She is asleep. What this shows is, is that the people he, in actual fact, so-called resurrected were never actually dead. He healed them through prayer, but they were in a state close to death. Same, say this is exactly what Jesus says. She is not dead; she is she is asleep. You just have to accept his words clearly as they're spoken. And the proof that, in actual fact, you know, you'll say, "Well, why do you take this as a literal thing, but you don't take when he says, I will die and be raised on the third day' as a literal thing?'" And the reason is because the disciples didn't take it literally. When Jesus said to the disciples, "I'll be dead, died, and raised on the third day," it says clearly in in at least two places in the Gospels that they did not understand what he meant. Now, if he had been going around resurrecting people from the dead, you know, resurrecting daughter of Jairus, Lazarus, etc., even at one point it says in the Gospels that, that hundreds came out of their graves and entered into the city, right? And this is a, clearly a, a fable, it's a fabrication. But let's say it, it was true. If this had been happening all day, every day, then when he said, well, I'm going to die as well, and I'm going to come back from the dead, it shouldn't have been that hard to understand, right? They'd seen examples of it in front of them. But the, gut, the disciples understood that it wasn't to be taken literally, Right? Uh, and that, in actual fact, is a demonstration as to why we don't either, because we follow their lead on this, because they best understood the message of Jesus. Um, again, the appeal to authority. The people you're quoting are, are you know, they're, 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 they're Christian scholars, I agree. But, you know, we have to understand that, you know, the best evidence that Jesus didn't die is that he didn't die. He was shown afterwards with his actual body. 
And the only reason you entertain the resurrection hypothesis, again, I'm going to come back to this, is that you believe that he was God, but you support the belief that he was God um, through belief that he rose from the dead. So it's a completely circular argument. Um, if you just take the plain reading of a person who lived on this earth, who was seen post-assassination attempt, it's quite clear that he, in actual fact, if you see somebody after an assassination attempt alive with the wounds of their assassination attempt, it means that they, they survived the, the ordeal. Did, did Jesus claim to be God? I've only got a minute, so I'll, I'll go quickly. Did Jesus claim to be God? The answer is no. Um, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, also said, I was the seal of the prophets before, um, while Adam was betwixt the water and the, and, and the mud. Um, God also says in the Quran about the prophet Muhammad, it was not, it was not your hand to people did obedient uh, allegiance to, but it was the hand of God. It doesn't mean Muhammad was actually God, but it means that they are the representative of God. Eli Eli Lama Sabakhtani is used from an older psalm, which indicates triumph. And I would ask you to, to reflect on that. Jesus was citing a psalm in which it was about triumph. What did he expect? He expected triumph. He expected his prayer to be answered that he made in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I would put it back to you. You need to read the context of Eli Eli Lama Sabakhtani and reflect on it. That if he's quoting a psalm, which is all about triumph, which is all about success and being saved, right? And why is he quoting that at the point of his moment of when he thinks that he's dying, if it wasn't a type of a prayer that, oh God, I believed you would grant me triumph, but I have not been driven it. So thank you very much. That's my time. Thank you very much for that final rebuttal. We're going to go into the open dialogue, folks. Following that, we're going to have five-minute closings and then Q&A. So there are two ways that you can submit a question for the Q&A. We have a good list already. So first is if you put a super chat question in, that will get bumped to the top of the list. Otherwise, you don't have to do a super chat. You can tag me with at Modern Day Debate. But as I said, we do put the super chats first, and then we do eventually run out of time. We've got to let the speakers go at some point. So just keep aware that we might not get to every single question that's a standard question. With that, gentlemen, the floor is all yours for open dialogue. All right, Tigger, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you believe Jesus, when he got out of the tomb, he walked to his disciples? Um, I would have to look into it. I'm not entirely Did, sure. I, I I understand he was... So, yeah, sorry, go on. I didn't, you, I didn't let you finish. No, I'm just curious. Did, when he got out of the tomb, did he walk? Did he walk to the disciples on Sunday a few days after? Uh, no, I know that I know that there is this Christian belief that he appeared through walls, that he suddenly appeared in the no, room. No, 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 no. I want to know your belief. Do you believe that he walked? That when he got out of the tomb, he got up on his two feet and walked? I don't know. I don't know. The Gospels, you know, at the end of the day, we 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 don't know the full details of what happened. It, it's it's likely that he was still being administered in the tomb, possibly by somebody visiting him regularly. Um, it's likely that they helped him up. It's likely that they he appeared as first as a gardener to Mary Magdalene. I understand. Um, so somebody had presumably given him those clothes, and he he'd or he'd found them. Um, so I don't know the details. Is the is a simple answer. Okay. Okay, there there is no reason to think that he could walk for at least a month after he had two large nails shoved into his feet. In the Philippines, they do crucifixion reenactments where they actually put nails in people, and they can't walk when that happens. And Frederick Zugaby in his book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, says that there's no reason to think he walked. Why is it that the early church thought he resurrected if he was crawling around and looking like he just basically was crucified uh, to the point of death. Why do they think he was resurrected in a glorified body if he was still covered in scars, couldn't even walk, would have had numerous uh, malnutrition issues? Where on earth would they get this idea from? Well, I, I, I'm not 
an expert on the, the events of what, what happens during a crucifixion, I do understand that it's not always the case that people have nails put through their feet. Um, sometimes crucifixion occurred with a step on which people were rested, um, their feet, um, and sometimes they were just put through their hands. Either way, you know, I think, again, the kind of incredulity as to a person surviving a crucifixion attempt, when people did survive crucifixion attempts, right, with medical therapy, uh, as opposed to my incredulity that, you, you know, believing that somebody rose from the dead, it's, they're, they're worlds apart. I mean, it's, it's, if you have incredulity well, that, that Jesus could walk, should, shouldn't you have greater incredulity that he came back from the dead, given that he was seen okay, well, afterwards with his wounds and required uh, eating? He asked for bread and fish. So uh, my question is, to you would be, sorry, go on. The debate is not, did Jesus rise? The debate is just, did Jesus die? And I would say it's far more likely that Jesus died. And something you get from like one of the more modern atheistic scholars, like the hallucination slash mythic type uh, various theories they put out, is going to be far more likely than that he survived. So even if you could make that a case, it's still more far more likely he died given all the medical points I, get, I pointed out. And again, with regards to the nail going through his, his cross, the only archaeological evidence we have is actually of a crucified victim in that same region named Johannin who has a nail going through his heel. They use nails, and there's no indication Jesus was sort of uh, given a special treatment. Possibility is not probability. So so the reality is, is there's no explicit evidence. In, in it's a very good point you've made, actually, and thank you for raising this, because I didn't, I didn't reflect on this. But there is actually no evidence. When I, when I look back through my reading of the Gospels, there's no mention, actually, of his feet whatsoever. And even when he speaks to Thomas, he doesn't refer to his feet. He refers to his side and he refers to his hands. Um, and there's actually no mention of uh, of his feet actually being hurt. So the answer is probably yes, he did walk um, because um, he we know that he was standing. We know that he was seen by as a guy dressed as a guy. As a... So presumably he must have been walking. You've just demonstrated, thankfully. I appreciate this from your point, which is that actually he didn't have probably nails put through his feet at all. Um, that it happened to somebody else is frankly irrelevant. Um, that doesn't mean. Do you have any evidence that, that that he was sort of given this exception? Because again, the cultural context shows that no nails would have been used in this. No, the cultural context doesn't. Your one incident that you can cite from a completely different incident shows that, mm -hmm. but that doesn't actually prove anything. The fact of the matter is that he was walking afterwards demonstrates. You very aptly pointed out that you know perhaps he did. He wasn't crucified. Didn't have nails put through his feet, or if he did. I think it's, again, a push to say that a person couldn't walk. Um, I think that there are instances where people do suffer. And you have to remember, these are flesh wounds. They weren't wounds that actually broke the bones. They would actually be passed. Um, well, in the, it depends on where on the feet. Um, but if they were placed, for example, between the metatarsals bones, it, it is possible that they fractured one or two bones. But people do walk, actually, with fractured uh, foot bones. That does happen. Um it's painful well, obviously it's very but, but painful he was again, a young if, 30 he was a young 33 year old man uh, who would fit and healthy all of his life so i wouldn't put it past him to actually walk especially with some aid from some other some other people so this is just begging the question you're saying because the gospels report he walked therefore he didn't have a nail in his feet so that he could walk this is just being circular again if he actually had nails in his feet he wouldn't be walking around as my main point with this and again this is again pointing to my main point basically is that if he had somehow survived, he would not have been walking around, given what we know about crucifixion. If your basic point is he was walking around, so there wasn't nails in his feet, this is just arguing in a circle. Well, I think that the key point is that God, you know, you believe that God can resurrect the dead, but he can't help Jesus walk after having wounds. And I think that that's, that's actually tells everybody quite nicely the, 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 the strange kind of 
perspective you have where you ought where you assume an extreme position because of your preconceived bias that he was an actual fact god and i want to ask you you know this key point i want to highlight is an actual fact the fact that jesus prayed the night before you know my god my god take this business cup of death away from me we know in deuteronomy that he um that according to deuteronomy a false prophet is hanged right do you believe jesus was a false prophet because it says very clearly that jesus was a false prophet uh, that the person who is hung is a false prophet according to Deuteronomy. Uh, Paul also reiterates this, that he who is hung on the wood is accursed of God. Um, and we know clearly, therefore, that Jesus, this is why Jesus didn't want to be hung on the cross. So from the Islamic perspective, and from my understanding, you know, for him to have died on the cross, therefore, makes him accursed. Do you understand what the connotations of being accursed are and what it means? Well, so I'll answer the question, but first let me just point out, I'm not doing a reconstruction like you. I'm going on what the text actually says. It says that he rose from the dead. You're trying to find pieces you can cherry pick out to form a reconstruction about what happened. And this is an inconsistent with him walking around is my main point with that. With regards to him praying in the garden beforehand, and then I'll get to the curse thing. Again, Jesus was experiencing emotional distress. Uh, oftentimes that just simply happens from knowing you're about to go through immense pain. Uh, we would expect this from anybody who's about to go through that, that they're going to be lamenting and venting about what's going to happen to them. That does not uh, mean that he was somehow you know, should have been happy about having to go through extreme torture. With regards to Paul and Galatians, yes, he was a curse for us. That's literally what Paul says. He was a curse for us by becoming sin. This is all that Galatians 3 is about. I mean, this is not showing that he's a false prophet because Jesus took upon all the sin upon himself in Christian thought and then took it to the cross and died. So yes, we do believe Jesus was a curse. I don't see how that's a problem. That's that's literally Christian dogma. So, so I mean, this is getting away a little bit from the crucifixion, whether he died or not, but it is related. And if you'll permit me, James, I would like to touch on this because we're now in the discussion phase. So I feel like we could possibly open it out, out a little bit. Now, this is one of my major problems with, from a theological perspective, taking this away just from a history. We've talked about the historical events of the crucifixion. I want to emphasize that, you know, we don't differ on the events of the crucifixion. We differ on our interpretation of it. So I, uh, that's clear between us, I think. But I think this is my one of my biggest theological problems with the idea of a crucifixion. Well, before we get to theological, can you just show me the tell me the verse you're citing in Deuteronomy that would show he's a false prophet? Um, sure. Uh, let me just bring it up one second, please. Um, yeah. So it's Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two to twenty-three. What does someone it say, false prophet? Uh, well, well, let me read it. New Living Translation. Okay. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, the body, body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body same day for anyone who is hung is accursed in the sight of God. In this mm -hmm. way, you're, you're quite right. I was actually confusing two separate um, no worries. quotes. So another one from Deuteronomy states that, um, that, that if, if a person claims to receive revelation from God, um, if he is a false prophet, that prophet must die, must be killed. Right, and that will prove that he is, uh, in actual fact, a false prophet. And I can bring that out for you if you wish. But you're absolutely right. But this demonstrates that he was cursed in the in the sight of God. And this is, from a theological perspective, this is what I find most difficult. In actual fact, is because it demonstrates that there's no concept of forgiveness in Christianity whatsoever. Uh, and the reason is for that, because if I if I wanted to forgive you, if I, you know, we we're taught in the Lord's Prayer by Jesus, "Oh Lord, forgive us." That you'll you'll know the words better than I will. Forgive me if I butcher this. You know, uh, all of, all of I, I'll say it really fast, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And okay. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us go. from evil. 
For that is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's a very Islamic prayer, I would say. because um, But it's not a Christian prayer. Certainly not according to Christian doctrines. And I'll explain why. So, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, what is the nature of our forgiveness of other people? Do we have to punish another person uh, because uh, somebody has forgiven us? If, for example, my brother um, trespasses against me, do I have to, what is the nature of my forgiveness? The nature of my forgiveness is that punishment is waived. That punishment is an actual fact waived. And that's actually the sign of our love. It's also a sign of my purity that uh, I can waive punishment. And that is what forgiveness is. If I take out that punishment on somebody else, or if he owes me a debt and I recoup that debt from someone else, you cannot describe that as debt forgiveness. That is seeking and obtaining the debt. So with respect to Jesus, this is from a theological perspective now, not so much historical. This is my big problem with Christianity, which is that it has no forgiveness because everybody who rejects Jesus is going to be punished eternally in hell for all of their sins. So for a finite number of sins, they're going to be punished eternally, which is in itself unjust. But then all the Christians who believe in Jesus, all of their sins have been punished, have been, have been, have been put upon Jesus. So when you look at it in the grand total and scheme of things, God has not actually forgiven a single uh, sin that anybody has ever committed. And furthermore, God actually becomes a hypocrite, God forbid, because he tells us to forgive others. He says, and he teaches us a prayer, oh God, forgive us as you, as we forgive those. So we're actually more forgiving than God. We can waive punishment, but God can't waive punishment. And that's actually a sign of him being unholy. But for us, it's a sign of our holiness. So this in actual fact demonstrates that the entire crucifixion narrative is, is fundamentally tortured and backwards in the Islamic narrative, Islamic understanding. When you seek God's forgiveness, God indeed forgives you as you forgive the trespasses of those against you. you he waives the punishment. And he says, it is waived. It is, it is written off. There is no debt. God has ignored it. God is the, one of his attributes of Allah is the effacer of sins. He effaces them, not by collecting punishment for them. So that's one point I wanted to make. And I just want to okay. say on the question, I... accursed, the idea I... that, the idea that relationally, and I want you to speak to this and, and explain this to me because I don't get it. If somebody has done wrong to me, right? I cannot, me taking out that punishment to somebody else doesn't fix my relational problem with that person. That person has still done wrong to me. It doesn't become right by virtue of that, by me taking out punishment on a third party. And so not only is this fundamentally unjust to the original third party, it doesn't actually solve the relational issue. And Jesus becoming a curse, a la'ana, which is the word in Arabic, it's also similar in Hebrew, it is the attribute of Satan. So in actual fact, God in actual fact regarded Jesus as Satan for, through no fault of his own, but for the sins of others, and it didn't actually fix God's relational problem with them, and God didn't demonstrate any forgiveness. It's, it's a complete mess. Okay, you've been gone for like four minutes. Can I respond about the as, same as, length of time? As long as you wish. I've got no problem. That's absolutely fine. fine. Yeah, yeah, I want to let I'm you sure, I'm sure James um, might have a problem if it's as long as you wish, but I mean, you know, within reason. No. Okay, there's a there's a lot of things I want to correct there. Uh, for one thing, we know, we do not say the punishment for sin is eternal torment in, in hell. That's not in the Bible. It says the wages of sin is death. The way God punishes typically, the main ways he punishes, is physical death and exile. That's all hell is. Hell is exile from God's presence. See my video, Does God Send People to Hell? Uh, God is not punishing people for eternity for their sins in hell. They have been exiled. And as C.S. Lewis said, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, it is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and give them a fresh start? He did on Calvary. To forgive them? They don't want to be forgiven. 
to leave them alone, that's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. C.S. Lewis also says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Again, this is about exile. So that's one thing to keep in mind there. And there's also, that you're, you mentioned it's eternal conscious torment. I'm actually an annihilationist. So I don't think hell is eternal. Um, that seems to be more in line with what a lot of the, yeah, it seems to be more in line with what a lot of the early church fathers taught. Uh, there's also universalists like Origen, for example. So there's a lot more uh, there in terms of Christian eschatology and Christian afterlife. With regards to the atonement, God is not punishing a third party because of the, tr- the Trinity. Jesus is God. Jesus takes the punishment upon himself. If you steal money from me, Okay, and I forgive you of your debt. the The debt is still there. I have just taken the debt upon myself now to pay. You know, when you forgive someone, it doesn't just go away of the sin. If someone were to kill my family members, I take and I forgive them. I have taken all that pain upon me to absorb, and then to just sort of disperse it through my own therapy, whatever you name it. Sin always comes with these types of shames, these feelings of guilt. When we forgive others, that doesn't go away. We just start to absorb it. God is taking the punishment upon himself. He's not putting it on a third party. He is taking it for us. And if anyone wants more, I did a whole video on this back in August called The Absurdity of Christianity, where I explained that the atonement is the reflection of God taking the punishment that we have, uh, taking the punishment of sin upon himself in a physical manifestation of that. All that suffering, all that hardship, all that hurt of what sin does is taken upon the cross, and it's a physical manifestation of what sin causes. Anytime, anytime somebody sins, that doesn't just go away for forgiveness, because the person who's doing the forgiveness is taking the the punishment upon themselves in terms of that feeling. And it's best represented in terms of debt and money, these kinds of things, which are analogies used in the New Testament. If you told took $10,000 from me, and I was going to use that money to buy food over the next year, okay, I now have to, and I forgive you, I now have to suffer that lack of food over the next year. It doesn't go away. There's still suffering involved, even in terms of forgiveness. What we don't realize as humans is when we forgive little things, we recognize there's little suffering, like when somebody just tells a white lie or maybe steals something minor. But in terms of our debt to God, that is a far bigger debt to be paid, and there's a lot more suffering involved. And so Jesus shows this in terms of the whole system that he set up with the atonement. Uh, sin, you know, you have to, it goes back to his, how he, this is typologically fulfilling Jesus with how uh, you need to do animal sacrifices in the Old Testament to atone for sins. Jesus then eventually takes this full punishment, the full weight of it upon himself, who is God, who did set up the system. Jude 1 says it was Jesus who led the people of Israel of Ixus. This is whole, his whole system. So, Yes, Jesus, and in terms of the whole Jesus claim to be God, again, I go back to what Jesus directly says. He calls himself Lord, Lord. That is in the Septuagint. That always refers to the Tetragrammaton. Jesus says that about himself, and there are numerous other places Jesus does this. Thanks. James, can I just respond to that before we go to questions, if that's okay? Oh, we got plenty of time. Okay, sorry. Yeah, great. Okay, it's fine. Um, So I think that this is really interesting. So, um, you know, Forgiveness does not involve shame, okay? Anybody who's genuinely forgives another does not experience shame or guilt for forgiving. In actual fact, forgiveness, for anybody who's done it, I'm sure you have, Michael, and perhaps you can reflect upon your own experiences and the viewers can reflect upon theirs. When you forgive somebody for a wrong done to you, and it is sincere forgiveness, not lip service forgiveness, but sincere forgiveness, it never involves shame. It actually is a moment of joy. It is a moment of joy that you have been able to 
fully embrace the other person despite what they did to you. There is not a hint of shame within it, and there is not a hint of guilt within it. And the best example of this, I would I would refer you in actual fact to the story of the prodigal son. This is Jesus's understanding of forgiveness. And I would ask you, where was the shame of the father when the prodigal son returned? Oh, I, I know. Where I know was, exactly where, where it was. Where was, it wasn't there. There was the shame of the brother who he told, you know, that your brother has come back and we must embrace him. Okay. And we must be grateful that he has returned. But the father didn't have, if he had any shame, it wasn't for the fact that he had to punish himself. The father didn't go through internal punishment because his son came back. It was a moment of joy. He laid on a feast for the man, for the boy. So in actual fact, this is the true aspect of forgiveness. But you don't believe in forgiveness. You believe that God has to punish, that he either punished himself or he punished Jesus. And this is also a bit of a, a bit of a misrepresentation, not intentionally. I don't want to accuse anybody of that, God forbid. But I feel it's a misrepresentation of Jesus's position. Jesus never claimed to be God. You can say he claimed Lord, Lord. As I've mentioned to you, in every scripture, if you read any religious text, the prophets of God always claim to be the messengers of God and the spokespeople of God. And by virtue of their appointed position as the spokesman of God, obeying the messenger of God becomes obeying God. This is why the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it is said okay, in the Quran about him that, um, you know, it is not you who took the oath of allegiance, but it was not your hand on top of their hand, but it was the hand of God. Nobody can ever claims that Muhammad was God's. Sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. But if I can, can I respond now? I'll just finish real quick on this, if okay. I may. You know, the key point for me is that Jesus never requested worship towards himself. He always said to worship the Father. Um, he always mm -hmm. said he nobody ever bowed down to him. You know, there yeah. was the woman who bowed down to him, uh, seeking his blessing. But nobody ever worshipped him as he, and he never asked anybody oh. to worship him. He requested people I to wanna... worship. Just, just to also bring us more centrally uh, to the topic, but also sure. if you're able to wrap this point up, and then we'll kick it over to Mike. Yeah, I'll, yeah, just, I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely wrap it up now. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that when Jesus was, it was put to him. This is the final point I make. When it was this put is... to Jesus that you claim to be God, he said, "Why are you offended? That I call myself the Son of God. When you are called, ye are gods in the Old Testament. When he, you know, when they picked up the stones to stone him. So he manifestly demonstrated his reference to himself as the Son of God in the terminology of the Bible, in which even the children of Israel were called gods. Okay." Uh, first of all, none of the early prophets ever called themselves Lord, Lord, and Jesus definitely accepted worship. If you go to Luke 4, 8, Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Okay, That word for worship only shows up one of their places in, in Luke's gospel, and it's in Luke 24, 52, where the disciples worship Jesus. Jesus definitely accepted the very worship he said was only for God. So you have there. With regards to the prodigal son, yes, the father did take shame upon himself. If we understand the cultural context, it's very much in the story. Okay, The prodigal son comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. And the only proper response in that culture would be to beat the son because that'd be very shameful. The culture would know you were doing this. He gives him the money anyway. Then when the prodigal son returns home, the father runs to meet him. In that culture, the original heroes of that audience would have understood this as a very shameful act. Men did not run. Women and children ran. Men did not run. And then he throws a feast for this son who 
uh, shamed his father in multiple ways, taking his money, ruining it, and the father throws a feast for him. The the community will look at this as a huge shameful thing. This is the response from the elder brother. To, to, he leaves. He goes out into his field of works because he's like, "What are you doing? This looks horrible." And look at what you're not you're not giving me a feast. This kind of thing. This is very much would look very shameful to the surrounding culture. This was very much in the cultural context of that time. It was a very much an honor shame culture. So yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by bringing up the prodigal son story. That very much has implements of honor and shame woven throughout. The elder brother even shames us father by not coming to the party. This is very much in that culture. This is all talked about in David De Silva's book, Honor, Patron, um, Honor, Patronage, and Kinship. I think that's the name of it. Uh, James, will you, is it okay if I respond briefly to that? I, we I, still I think got like 20, we still got like 12 minutes or something. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't know how long we've got. Um, so what we're 10.30. What's the time we're going to finish the uh, discussion? Will we go on to a Q&A from the people sending in questions after this? Sure, that's fine. Email. I've lost track of time. My apologies. No problem. We've got 12 more minutes of open dialogue, and then we have okay. five-minute closings, and then Q&A from the audience. Okay, wonderful. That's great. So I think, you know, the, the key thing there is that the, the and I, as I agree, we've got to get back to the topic of the crucifixion itself, but uh, you're taking other people's shame and saying it's the Father's shame, okay? Mm -hmm. Other people would have been felt shame on behalf of the Father, perhaps, by saying, my God, he's really... You know, he's not honoring himself. He's not showing his dignity, right? But that's their shame, okay? The man is running down the street to meet his son. He's not experiencing shame. He's experiencing joy. You know, how is that in any way correlative to Jesus suffering on the cross and going to hell for three days and three nights? And he was saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I don't think my Jesus God, my God, hell. My God, okay, that's fine. So my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? And so this is in actual fact a... Uh, this is a post hoc Christian reading of the prodigal son. The plain reading, again, I, I'll emphasize the plain readings of all of these things, which is that the prodigal son was met by a loving and joyful father. Okay. Other people may have had shame on his behalf, but the father didn't have any shame whatsoever. Um, and the point I want to get back to with the crucifixion narrative, I would like you to, to address my kind of most central point, which is that the resurrection is used as proof of Jesus' divinity. But Jesus' divinity is supported by the resurrection. And so the only reason you entertain the hypothesis that Jesus in actual fact rose from the dead, instead of the plain reading of an event of person post-assassination attempt being seen with the wounds of his body and needing food still, right, which is survival, as he said in the sign of Jonah, as he prayed for, right, the, the post, and as Isaiah 53 says, he shall prolong his days, he shall see his seed, the only reason you entertain that hypothesis is in actual fact because you believe he's God in the first place, but you use the resurrection to prove that he's God. So I want you to square that circle. Explain to me why I'm wrong. I'm very happy. You know, I don't mind being wrong. I want you to explain to me why is that a wrong reading of the situation? Okay, because I'm very confused with this because I've argued for one thing with the prodigal son. I just want to say people can experience multiple emotions. They can experience joy uh, of their son coming home and still the shame you're going to get from absorbing that horrible sin he did. But with regard to answering your question here, um, I'm confused about the point because I directly argued Jesus is God because he said he was, and then he demonstrated it through the resurrection. I, I didn't argue in a circle. So, I mean, Jesus said he was God, and then he did miracles to show that he was who he said he was. That's not arguing in a circle. Okay, that's fine. That's really interesting. So, so you've, you've mentioned Luke 4.8. It says very clearly in all of the translations you could possibly hope to read, 
It also worship the Lord your God and serve only him. If, if the word worship is used in Luke's gospel only, well, you haven't mentioned Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark. No, 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 no. Let me, let me clarify then, my point here. Let me clarify my point. I, so, I understand your point. I understand your point, which is that in Luke 4, right, the word worship is used. And in the same gospel, that word is only used again when it says the disciples worshiped him. Right. I get mm. that. That's fine. Okay. Um, the point I want to make is that, you know, that's the word, the word, as you well know, in Hebrew, Hebrew has multiple meanings. But if you look at what Jesus himself said, it says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And there is no recorded event where Jesus solicited worship from anyone. And when he was put to him that you call yourself God, they picked up stones to stone him. And they said, he said, Why, which, which of my good deeds do you stone me? They said, for none of your good deeds, but that you being man, call yourself God. So the question, this is the question. This is the event we need to focus on. What was Jesus's answer to them? It is directly put to him on pain of death by stoning. Do you, do you call yourself God or not? And he, what was his answer? Did he turn around and go, yes, I am God. I am God. No, he said, do you not read in your own scriptures that it is written that ye are gods? Do you then object to the one whom God has sanctified and purified if he calls himself the son of God? So he says that in your books, it is written that ye are even gods, but you object to me calling myself the son of God? So he didn't say that he is God. What he explained is that I'm using the term son of God in the same way, way and with the same language that it was used in the Bible previously for the children of Israel that they were called the children of God. So this is this is the nature. Of, so, so when it was actually put to him directly, instead of post hoc interpretations of Jesus's words, he explained his meanings very clearly. Okay, Jesus called himself the son of man. He said that. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's a direct reference, as every scholar will note, to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man shows up and receives worship and a kingdom forever. Yes, Jesus did receive worship. I gave you Luke 24. At the end of the chapter, his disciples worshiped him. So very much he is receiving this. And you're also quoting from the Gospel of John, where Jesus says he's the one who resurrects people. Before Abraham was, I am. Uh, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Every scholar accepts, including Bart Ehrman, for example, that Jesus is definitely claiming to be God in this gospel. So it's a very odd argument. Jesus is, of course, avoiding getting stoned, but he often goes back and reiterates that he's God. For example, after this, when he says, Israel, you are called gods, he's quoting Psalm 82. He then says, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I say I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. If I am, do if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to rest him, but he escaped it from their hands. So again, Jesus once again reiterates his divinity and equality with the father there in terms of ontology. He's again saying once again that, no, no, I, I am very unique. I have a special relationship with the Father, and I am in him. He is in me, this kind of language. I, I, I don't know where you're coming from on this because, again, you can find example after example of Jesus doing this where he's accepting worship. He's claiming to be the Son of Man, this guy who is receiving a kingdom in worship. There's a lot of examples like this. So I, I just want to clarify with you. Are you referring to Luke 24, 50 to 52? Yeah, that's where his disciples worship him. Okay, right. Now, this is also the event of the ascension, I presume, you're referring to. Yes. While he was still speaking words of love and blessing, he floated off the ground into the sky, ascending into heaven before their very eyes, and all they could do was worship him. Overwhelmed and ecstatic with joy, they made their way back to Jerusalem. Is that the quote you're referring to? 
And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yeah, verse 52. Are you not aware that this is not in the earliest editions of Luke? Are you not aware uh, the, that this is a are you not aware that this is a well-known addition to the gospels? What manuscripts show it's an addition? Well, people can look it up themselves. It's a well-known addition. No. The there has never been a man, the there's never been a manuscript found without this section. The ascension of Jesus is well known to have been added as a uh, later interpolation of the Bible, and it is not to be found in the earliest editions of the Bible. Uh, and, yeah. and this is this is a well-known fact. So I, I'm quite surprised no, that you would use that. And it's extraordinary that you have to you have, have reverted instead of showing an event during actual Jesus's gospel ministry where they worshipped him. The question we really have to answer for us is where in the gospel ministry did Jesus ever solicit what if he is literally the equal partner of the father we have to ask ourselves a simple question why wasn't there at least 50 50 of them worshiping the father and worshiping jesus why weren't there instances recorded in the gospels where he's sitting on a chair and all the disciples are bowing down before him instead all we have is him leading them in worship him encouraging them to worship the father him telling them worship the father when they come when a man comes to him and says master master you know um how shall i good master how shall i enter the kingdom of heaven he says why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, I know the Christian interpretation of this, which is that, don't you realize that I'm God? Therefore, I must be, in actual fact, the best. But that's not what he says. It's quite evident if somebody calls you something, and you say, how, I, how can you call me this when there is none who is like none but God who is like this? That's, a, that's defining yourself as different. So in all aspects, Jesus was didn't claim to be worshipped. And the key biggest thing I want to actually say about being God is the fact that the Old Testament is chock full of statements that God does not die. I mean, that's the big elephant in the room here, isn't it? There are okay, multiple well, statements Exodus in the Old Testament. Exodus 15 says God is a man. You can, you can quote Paul all you want in Acts, but that's irrelevant. I, I said Exodus. I said Exodus. Exodus 15 says God is a man of war. That's, that's, that's fine, but, you want, but I, that's, that has no relevance to what I'm actually saying. It's very clearly stated in the Bible in multiple, multiple places, and people can look it up for themselves, that the Old Testament says that God does not die. And I think that that's probably the elephant in the room. You say that the proof of Jesus being God is that one, he said, I am. Again, I'm not sure how that um, is proof of anything. When it was put to him, are you God? He said, he referred to, him, to the, the language used in the Old, uh, okay. uh, Old Testament. And the last let point I'll make is this. The last point I'll make is this, before I let you jump in, please. Um, you know, you talk about the son of man. You know, we know he wasn't the son of man. The son of man was a metaphorical reference. He wasn't the son of man. He was born of a virgin. So in actual fact, the son of God was also a, also a metaphor. And in fact, if you look at every single instance where it is reported that he said, I will die and be raised on the third day, he never says the son of God. He says the son of man will be raised on the third day. And that indicates that he didn't want people to misunderstand him, that he was in actual fact prophesying that he was God. He was saying that I am a man. I'm a human being. Okay. Okay, with regards to your claim that it's a fact that Luke was added to, that's just nonsense. We've never found a manuscript, a complete one, that has Luke in it, that has that section missing. It's always there. This is a reconstruction that some scholars have put forward, which there is no evidence for. Okay, Jesus did call himself the Son of Man, Matthew 8, 20, Matthew 9, 6, Matthew 10, 23, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. He says directly that he is the son of man multiple times. In Matthew 16, he affirms that he is the Christ. And we know this is a reference again to that same divine figure that is also called the son of man. So over and over again, Jesus confirms again that he is the son of man. I'm not sure where you're getting this from. And again, all of this is irrelevant to the main topic because even if all of this is wrong, 
Jesus still died on the cross as just a human, as every single scholar today basically accepts. So even if all this is wrong and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Jesus didn't actually claim to be God, it doesn't matter. He still died on the cross. The evidence overwhelmingly confirms that. That's why even atheist scholars today confirm that. Bergerd Ludemann says it's indisputable. So even if all of this stuff is you're right about, doesn't matter. Because I could cite atheist scholars that would probably agree with you on the on the Luke issue, but they would still say Jesus died on the cross. So I'm not sure how this helps support your point at all. So the Son of Man... Uh... Just want to check, are you, are you finished with your point? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not saying at all that he didn't call himself the son of man. I fully agree he did call himself the son of man. What I'm saying is he was born of a virgin, so he wasn't the son of a man. But that's he not was... what that means. That's a specific well, phrase. That's a specific title we find in Daniel 7. A figure coming who, like one of a son of man, who's given a kingdom and divine power and worship forever. It's a specific reference to Daniel 7. It's not a literal title that he is a son of a man. So it's extraordinary that son of man is always metaphorical, but son of God is literal. Whereas that's a completely inconsistent position. No, son of God is also son of God is a metaphorical title for Messiah in most cases. Right. So there is no therefore evidence that he was an actual fact God because he himself I gave you evidence. No, you didn't. You said he said I am. That's not evidence of anything. Right. I gave you Matthew 7:15. I gave you the references about worship. I gave you John 8. No, 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 no. The I can cite Mark 1. Are- so, so the references of worship are weak, as I've pointed out. The You have one word which you then ascribe uh, as evidence after in, in a passage which is extraordinarily dubious and which has been touted by scholars as a clear example of interpolation in Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's beside the point. I want to get back to the main point here, which is about the crucifixion. Uh, and the main point I want to emphasize is, is two things. So the Lord's Prayer, you know, again, I want to kind of mention this as well, which is that Forgive us those forgive us trespasses, those who forgive against us, you know, as though as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's not the nature of what's happening in this particular incident. Uh, what's happening in this particular incident is a man being tortured to death. Um, that is not what happens when you forgive somebody. You don't feel like you're being tortured to death. Uh, and the prodigal son story demonstrates that very aptly, actually. Uh, the, the father's full of joy. Other people have shame and issue with it, but he doesn't. Um, the, the second point I want to make and come back to is again this kind of uh, point, which is that the only reason you entertain the hypothesis of resurrection is because you believe in his divinity a priori. But if you take that out of the equation, can you? Can I put it to you? Can I ask you this question? If we're talking about a bloke called Jim, who you see on the street after a hanging, who has the marks of hanging on him, would you entertain resurrection as a hypothesis for him, right? When he has... Or would you think, oh, this guy has an actual fact survived? I put it to you. If he said, I'll give you a chance to I died to and his wrote... Question, okay. Mike. I'll give you a chance to respond yeah. to his question. And I just want to let you know, we have to, once Mike does finish, we got to go to the Q&A as we're actually just slightly over the open dialogue time. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would remind people that we're on the whole atonement issue. Check out my video, The Absurdity of Christianity. You can also read works uh, by scholars like N.T. Wright and uh, William Lane Craig on penal substitution and how this all plays out. So there, there's scholarly works on that, which are relevant to the debate. Um, if some guy named Jim said he died and rose from the dead and I saw his dead body, yes, I would entertain that as a possibility because like you, I believe in God and I believe miracles are possible. That doesn't mean I would fully believe it. There'd be other evidences. And there's other evidence we, we use for the resurrection, like the disciples willing to be persecuted and suffer their immediate proclamation in Jerusalem. The fact that they wouldn't invent things like the women discovering the tomb and other things as well. So yes, I would entertain that. 
Uh, that doesn't mean for Jim, I wouldn't believe he resurrected because I have to look at the specific evidence for that case. And when it comes to Jesus, it's far more likely that he rose from the dead than that he survived the crucifixion. But all that's irrelevant to the main point. At the end of the day, the evidence still demonstrates Jesus died, regardless of what happened after, regardless of what he claimed about himself, if he did claim he was God or not. The Even atheist scholars accept that, and some of them don't think he did all those other things. So keep that in mind. It's irrelevant to the main point. They may not have seen this debate, though. They may change their jump. view <laughs> I have to jump into the closing statement. So we're going to give each of our guests five minutes for their concluding statement to draw together the threads from this debate. So we'll start with, as we started earlier with Mike, and then we'll go to Tahir for the final word in his five minute closing statement as well. Mike, the floor is all yours. Well, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate the debate. I thought it went well. Uh, again, I'm not convinced at all that the swoon theory is the most likely explanation, especially after this debate. The medical evidence from uh, medical experts who've actually examined the gospel, who worked on dead bodies, will say, yes, Jesus died. New Testament scholars say this. The, the overwhelming consensus is that Jesus died on the cross. And my opponent says that maybe I'm, uh, you know, uh, re assuming a priori that Jesus didn't, that Jesus was God or that Jesus resurrected. I could say the same thing to him. He only assumes this swoon theory because it's what the Akhmadi founder, uh, Mr. Gulamachman, taught. Uh, so I, how do we not know that's not him? It's just his bias. He's coming with his A priority. He's got to defend it and force the evidence to fit. And unfortunately, we see that. He'll quote half of Luke 24, but ignore the very verses right after that. He'll quote the verses where Luke, where Luke says Jesus was eating a fish, but ignore the verses right after that where Jesus says he rose from the dead. He'll quote Acts 21, but ignore where James says he agrees with Paul about Gentiles. He'll, verse 25, those kind of issues. So again, what does the actual evidence show? Okay, unless we, the if we cherry pick the gospels, you can make it fit the swoon theory, but we can't do that. We got to go on what the actual first century evidence actually uh, tells us. He cited the Quran numerous times. That's just a, not a reliable source. And even if he is right, uh, the scholar Khalil Dani, who's a um, Ismaili scholar, has argued that the Quran actually teaches Jesus died on the cross from places like Surah 3. So I'm not at all convinced that that's even the proper way to interpret. I think Khalil Dani actually gives a, a very good interpretation of this. Uh, and so I would probably more likely think that. Again, regarding back to, um, uh, let's see here, the sign of Jonah issue. Again, once again, that it, it, this does not say I will be alive like Jonah. And I don't even think Jonah did live. It says that he will be gone for the same period of time. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. That is the comparison right there. It is not just as Jonah survived, I'll survive too. The comparison is always to the day motif. So you got to keep that in mind. So at the end of the day, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates Jesus died on the cross. When the spear went into his side, Frederick Zugabee says this is not evidence that Jesus was alive. Blood and water coming out would be a natural result from a dead body, someone who suffered severe beatings, traumatic shock, and the blood would not be able to clot. So we should expect this. Again, early church fathers agreed that this, this wouldn't happen naturally, but modern medical experts say that, no, this is basically what happened. The overwhelming evidence confirms over and over again that Jesus died. Uh, we didn't get much into this in the open discussion, which I was a little disappointed about. I wanted to talk more about the medical research. We ended up talking more about theology, which is fine. But again, th there's no debate when it comes to the medical research here on what actually the Gospels record and what Jesus says about himself. He says he died. Achmedes want to claim that Jesus said he would not die, but they will ignore quote after quote from Jesus. Matthew 17, they are, 
They were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Luke 18, 31, they will kill him. You go again to Matthew 16. Peter says, no, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. According to Jesus, according to Jesus himself, if you believe he was not supposed to die, that's a satanic idea. So when Muslims claim that Jesus didn't die, Christians immediately think of that passage. So you got to keep that in mind as well. And again, this doesn't make sense from an historical standpoint. You're telling me that Jesus said he died and rose. His followers said he died and rose. All the first century sources say he died and rose. Then centuries later, someone comes along and says, no, no, he actually survived. That, that, that is the definition of post hoc reasoning. I'm, and I was being accused of post hoc reasoning. That's the very definition of it. There is no evidence of this. And again, the Achmadi founder, Mirzagul Achman, was heavily critiqued uh, by actual scholars in, in this field. Again, to name a few here, uh, Per Bezkov, Strange Tales About Jesus, Gunter Bronbold, Jesus in India. Uh, his, a lot of his ideas about that tomb, not supported by the data, not taken serious by archaeologists. Jesus died in Jerusalem. And if his followers saw him walking around, then he rose from the dead. It would take nothing short of a miracle, and no one reported that he, he was miraculously survived. So I'm going on what the texts actually say. Uh, my opponent, unfortunately, is cherry-picking lines out of the Gospels that fit the conclusion he wants, and then reading that back into the first century, but not going what the texts say. One of us is following the, the text. One of us is saying, well, the founder of my movement said this. I got to make the data fit it. Let me find pieces and cherry-pick. So unfortunately, I do appreciate to hear. I think this was a great conversation. I don't mean any ill will. I appreciate the back and forth. I think you're a really and nice person, and I appreciate that. Time. We'll kick it over to Tahir for his five-minute closing as well. And then, folks, as I mentioned, we'll have the Q&A immediately after. If you happen to have a question, you can still submit, although i got to tell you, we got to hear what time is it there where you are? Oh, don't worry. I'm a late sleeper, man. Okay, good, because we've got a good amount of questions already, folks. But if you want to submit, you can submit more. And with that, we're going to kick it over to Tahir for his five-minute closing as well. So again, Michael, I fully agree with you. No hard feelings whatsoever. I feel like I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and I really thank you for engaging with me um, and with the True Islam UK channel, which is the channel I'm representing. Um, so please go away, everybody, and have a look at that, True Islam UK. Um, so first of all, there's no Ahmadi bias here. You will notice that I didn't actually once quote anything from the writings of the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And I did not draw any arguments from the Quran in actual fact. What I did was I demonstrated that the Quranic narrative fitted an existing narrative that in actual fact is found clearly in the events of the Gospels. So I never based any of my arguments to be absolutely clear on the Quran or on Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, or on any statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him either. And he has statements which also support this in theory. So I don't have bias. On the contrary, I would say in actual fact that it's you who unfortunately has the bias because there can't actually be evidence for resurrection. Okay. There can never be evidence for resurrection because uh, nobody is able to uh, perceive into the next life to see that somebody has died and then come back to death, come back to life. All there can be is evidence for a person um, appearing to die and then walking around afterwards. And that in and of itself does not prove resurrection because as I've demonstrated and as I've gone through, that in actual fact supports 
the idea of a person surviving much more strongly. Because you and I both know that if you see somebody post-hanging with the necessities of his human body, that's quite evidently the greatest proof that the person in actual fact survived. And the only reason you would go to a resurrection hypothesis is because you have a religious bias. You see, you're looking at the Gospels as a Christian, as a person who believes in the divinity of Christ. I'm looking at the Gospels as a historical text where words have been known to have been changed over time, where words have been been inserted, where there was a contradiction in the early followers between Paul and James. When James confronted Paul and said, why are you teaching the Jews all places not to follow the, the, the law of Moses? And where he publicly repented, and you have to ask yourself the question, if he hadn't done anything wrong, if there was no disagreement between James and Paul, why is it that Paul then publicly repented, shaved his head and stayed in the temple for three days? And why were the Jews from Asia who had believed in Jesus so upset that they mobbed him and nearly killed him, requiring the Romans to in actual fact step in and save his life? So this all completely goes against your idea and your, your theory that this was a settled narrative early in the Christian doctrine. And I want to emphasize this point that we believe that the survival of Jesus from the death on the cross in fulfillment of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is the greatest sign of his truth. That when Paul says that 500 people saw him afterwards, that's why his mission took off. Because people had tried to kill him to prove that he was accursed and God saved him. And they had the same interpretation of the post-crucifixion appearance of Jesus as I have which is that he had survived and therefore he was not accursed of God. Therefore, he was God's messenger. Therefore, God, they should actually listen to him. Paul, in actual fact, and I refer you to the book, Paul and the Pharisee Conspiracy Against Jesus. Paul, in actual fact, was a hypocrite within Jesus's movement who sought to distort Jesus's actual message so as to make it unpalatable for Jews to accept by making out like Jesus was, in actual fact, an idolatrous figure within Christianity. When in actual fact, Jesus was the leader of the Ebionites, the early Jewish Christian movement. So as for the medical research, uh, I'll finish on this particular point. I'm not going to labor the point that I'm an intensive care doctor because there are intensive care doctors who are more senior than me who are Christian, but they're not here. And I'm, I'm here debating. So I'm going to give my viewpoint on this particular matter. And that is this, that to give medical research evidence that a person died and came back to life is absurd. Okay. If blood in, and water, even if you accept the first, first two points about the blood and water, firstly, Blood cannot separate from water, okay, in coagulation. I know you haven't particularly made this point, but people do. They say it's plasma. If it becomes plasma, then the blood can't come out because it's coagulated. And it certainly wouldn't come out under pressure. And you say that it doesn't say that it came out rapidly. It says that it just came out. That's not what it says. Euthys means straight away, rapidly, forthwith. This is the original Greek word, and it indicates a beating heart. And so we have, at the moment, at the very moment of checking whether he is dead, we have a beating heart in evidence, and the person witnessed it, writes, this is a true testimony, and this is what I witnessed with my own two eyes. So I want to end on this particular note. I would refer all the, the listeners to two books in particular called One, Deliverance from the Cross by Muhammad Zafrullah Khan. It's free as a PDF online, and Jesus in India, which goes through the evidence in a much more thorough and detailed fashion than I can here on this evening, here this evening. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much, James, for, um, for entertaining us today. My yeah, pleasure. I just want to uh, say say thank you for the debate. I'll be uh, live on my channel to review it tomorrow. Uh, I hope everyone who's watching <laughs> will watch that as well. You got it. And <laughs> our guests are linked in the description. What are you waiting for? You can click on their links right now. You apparently enjoy listening to them, so you can listen more by clicking on their links below. First question coming in from Issa Kabir says, Kum, let me know if I'm pronouncing this right. Kum, Haiz, Ho, Urdu, T. 
They say, always great to see you, IP. This one from Kyle says, Thank question you. for true Islam. The Quran says to believe in Jesus as a prophet and his book, the Bible. So why would you and your entire religion disregard Jesus's own words with him stating his own death? Uh, so that's a great question. So that's uh, the faulty premise there. So the Quran doesn't say that um, Jesus was, uh, it says that we must, so the principle in Islam is that we believe that God has sent messengers to every nation on earth. It says in the Quran that there is no nation to whom a messenger has, been, has not been sent. Uh, to whom a warner has not been sent. So we believe the Australian Aborigines, the Native Americans, the English, the French, everybody has had a messenger from God. Over time, they get mythologized and they turn into witches and wizards and the rest of it, right? Now, as for Jesus, peace be on him, um, we believe that he. What we, are, what we are bound to accept is not the current version of his statements and his revelations, Right? We take it as a historical document. That's how we see the Bible. And we believe it has contains true prophecies. It contains true words that Jesus did say, but it also contains a lot of interpolations. And so what we're admonished to accept, according to the Quran, is the principle that Jesus received revelations and that those revelations, which are mentioned also in the Quran, is the Injil, that we are to accept them. But in terms of uh, the gospel narrative or the, the narrative of the gospel writers that they put upon the events of the crucifixion, that doesn't mean that we have to accept them. And now you 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 point out what Jesus actually said that he you know he said claimed to have said that he uh, will die and raise on the third day. The fundamental tension between myself and Michael, I guess, is is a question. It hinges upon this very claim, and I think Michael will probably agree on that as well. That whether Jesus claimed to that he would, um, how should we understand the two different things? One, there's a sign of Jonah. He says my sign will be the sign of Jonah, which I've explained is not related to the time thing because at least in two of the three references, time isn't even mentioned. And secondly, me going on holiday for two for three days and three nights doesn't mean I've shown the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is survival against all odds, okay? That's what everybody at the time of Jesus would have understood the sign of Jonah to refer to. That's what makes it a sign, that God demonstrated his attributes of magnificence by saving a person in the midst of a storm. So that's on the one hand, death cannot be the sign there, okay? It has to be survival. And so when he said, therefore, I will die and rise on the third day, which the disciples didn't understand, I take that to me a metaphorical statement, if it was made by Jesus, of which I have doubts. But let's take it that it was actually made by Jesus. I take that to be a metaphorical statement in the same way that Jonah himself said that I called to God in the, from the place of the dead. To be raised from the dead means to me, it means to be raised from the place of the dead, as he himself explained to the daughter of Jairus, which is that she is not dead, she is only asleep. He was in a coma-like state, and then he uh, was brought back. But he was never clinically dead. Got it. We've got a number of questions. So I've got a... Let's see, I should have said this earlier. It's my fault. Is that we've got a... That one was an incisive one. So I want to give you plenty of time on that one. We just have to maybe move quicker through some of Sorry, these, though. I'll do my best. Totally okay. Apollo's Christian Apologetics says, John 1934 means immediately after in order not speed unconjugated root is a greek word that nobody would understand which means straight according to lsj slash mm -hmm. strongs not once in all koine greek literature does it translate fast or as fast you can't right. read gk get smashed 
Sorry, yeah, I mean, the word basically means just come out of. It does not mean to come out faster in a certain way. Like when you look in the movie The Passion of Christ and you see the blood and water spraying out of that did not happen. That just that's not what John says. That'd be very unlikely, according to the medical research. The word just means to come out of. It's used in Matthew 5, 26, Matthew 2, 6, just, you know, four out of Judah shall come the, the a ruler is basically what it's saying. It does not refer to a type of speed or anything. So it does not say the blood and water was like gushing out of him like a river. Uh, it most likely would have happened when the spear went in, some came out, and then that would have been basically been it. It was. It's You can see this on Frederick Zugabee's book. He talks about this in detail. Uh, can I just... Yeah. Can I speak to that? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. So um, thank you for that question. Um, if you look at Strong's definition, it's very clear. It says, so outline of biblical usage. Um, this is on Blue Letter Bible. I'm not making this up myself. You can go on Blue Letter Bible, go to the word, go click on UCS G2117 is Strong's word. It says straight level, straightforward, upright, true, sincere, straight away, immediately, forthwith, Right. And then in Strong's definition, he says, Euthus, literally level or figuratively true, adverbially of time at once, anon, by and by, forthwith, immediately, straight away. So if you cut, if it says straight away or forthwith or immediately there came out blood and water, the meaning of that is quite clear that he had a beating heart. Because I don't know, you know how, how many dead bodies you guys have interacted with. I'm not sure. But even when you take a vial of blood right, from a patient, if you do not do this with it and keep it moving, all right, that blood coagulates within a minute, okay? So the idea that a person within who is dead, possibly for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, that his blood should come out straight away, right, or rapidly under force, under a degree of pressure, which is what is indicated by that word, because things wouldn't come out straight away. It would trickle out if they cut him on the side and he was dead. And that indicates to me, at least, that indicates that he was, uh, he was, he was alive. See the crucifixion of Jesus forensic inquiry by Frederick Zugabe. He deals with all this and shows no, that's not. Is he? A, is he? A, is he a passionate Christian? I don't know. I just I read the parts of the book. There were, I think he's a Christian. Yeah, but that but that doesn't matter. He's still a medical expert. This one coming in from Dash is the Islamic belief that Allah only made it look like Jesus was crucified and then waited six hundred years to reveal what actually happened doesn't make sense to me. So that's a really great question. I really like that question. Um, uh, no, that's not true. So we believe that at the time of Jesus, Jesus was believed to have uh, survived, that he was widely accepted because he has survived, because people realize, oh, this guy is not accursed of God. We tried to kill him to prove him being accursed, but he survived and therefore he is an actual fact from God. Um, and then when he left rapidly and he migrated, as all prophets do, and often prophets do rather, and he migrated to the East where he turns up in Hindu literature, as, and I've mentioned that that he's mentioned in Hindu literature after 78 AD as the virgin, uh, son of God, who born of a virgin, who names himself Jesus the Messiah. Um, so that's something for Christians really to try and explain away. Um, the What happened is, is he developed the Ebionites, with the, with the group of Jesus' followers in Judea. And Paul created a breakaway group, which became the church. But the Ebionites split from Paul. And with his arrest and with his statements, especially in the courts, of Herod, and then in Rome, it became evident that Paul was following a completely different teaching to Jesus. Paul's movement, it wasn't really Christianity in the true sense of Jesus' original teaching, spread in the in the West, whereas Jesus' original message, the Ebionite following, spread in the East in Asia. And Got to move that forward region. pretty soon here. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Ebionites did not actually, they were not what people, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. They thought the Christ was a heavenly figure that descended upon him. They also thought they all could become Christ. Most of them denied the virgin birth, uh, and they do not date to the early church. They come after the 70 AD destruction. Uh, the earliest you could date them is early first century, but their movement didn't start springing up until after the apostles had basically passed on. So now <laughs> the earliest church is what we see in Paul's letters and in the Gospels. Sorry, I gotta can I move just, forward. I can give you the last word one, on this one. one. Really... Hold on a second. I can give you the last word on this one to hear. It's just that I do also want to keep it on the actual question. Is that we're eventually we're gonna have to stop giving you guys rebuttals because you just have so many questions and there's a lot to unpack for each one. So go ahead, Tahir. We'll give you the last word on this one because the just super going chat was back to you. of the just I just realized something completely silly of me. Youthies, the the thing, the blood coming out is about a previous question, not this question. The youthies coming out. You know, uh, blood and water came out. The word euthes actually means straight or level. That's the first application of the word. For blood and water to come out straight or level from the person's body means it was under pressure. That's the original meaning of the word. It's not simply that. So that's a great proof that it was under pressure because it was straight or level that it came out from his body. That in actual foe shows that it was came out forcefully under pressure under a beating heart. That's a fantastic proof from the original word of the word meaning of the word euthies. Gotta move to the next one. Austin says, when the Quran says the Jews killed him, not could this could this just mean Allah killed him, and so the Jews shouldn't boast, like in Surah 817. No, so it says clearly in the verse of the Quran, it says. Uh, it was recounting some of the, the wrong things that the Jews had done for which God was displeased with them. Um, and, and it says, and for their saying, we did kill the Messiah, son of Mary, the messenger of God. So they're using the word messenger of God. Ironically, they're like, oh, yeah, we killed this messenger of God. Right. So it's not that God killed him because God then immediately denounces that view. It says, whereas they did not kill him, nor did they kill him through crucifixion, but he only appeared to them as one like that. So, or he was made to appear to them as one so. So God is very clear. They claimed to kill him. They didn't kill him. He appeared to them as though he was dead. That's exactly this, what I'm saying here today. This one coming in from Joshua Wooden says, the topic is, did Jesus die by crucifixion? Redirecting to resurrection. Yes, miracles are not common. Your quote was to the Jews who know Psalm 22. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm a real... I mean, real quick, that's what I would say. I mean, just it's not the debate is not over the resurrection. It's not if Jesus died. It's far more likely Jesus died and did not rise than that Jesus even survived. I think it's I think Jesus died and rose from the dead. I think that's the most likely explanation given all the data. But given just the evidence of the crucifixion, if we just look at the evidence of the crucifixion, Jesus died. If they saw him walking around after, then he resurrected. That's a big if. That's another debate. In terms of this debate, yes, Jesus did die. That's what the evidence suggests. So coming on, do appreciate your question. Joshua Wooden says, Jesus is Messiah in the Quran. You said he was false Messiah. Sounds like shirk. And what say you about some Muslims say that he did die? Occam's razor? So I, I never said, said he was a, I never said he was a false messiah. Absolutely not. No. The term Masih means uh, the anointed one. It also indicates the one who travels a lot, actually, in the original word which also indicates Jesus is true. Jesus was not a false messiah. Jesus was the true messiah of the Jewish people as per Islamic belief. And the Muslim, we believe that the Muslim messiah has also come who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Libel says, 
to true Islam. You don't believe Jesus was crucified and resurrected, but you believe in your prophet having flown on a donkey to Jerusalem. They say, I don't understand. Yeah, it was a okay. magical donkey. So we don't we don't believe that uh, it happened. Uh, it was a literal event. It was a vision that he had, and he he flew to heaven. And it was a vision that he had where he entered through heaven. And the best proof of this is the fact that the Quran, recounting this in the surah called Surah Najm, it states that the heart of the prophet did not lie in what it saw. It doesn't say his eyes did not lie. And in the full hadith, the full statement of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, when he he, dis- he recounts the entire thing, the last words of that hadith were, and then he woke up. Right. So the entire vision that he had, where he entered into heaven, was not a literal event. He was sleeping. It was a it was a it was a spiritual experience. This one coming in. And do want to remind you folks, if you happen to put in a super chat that's substantive, we'll of course read it. If you put in a super chat that's just like an insult or just something that says like, oh, this is just a myth on either side, we're not looking for those for the QA. King Josiah of Judah says, Does the Bible contradict its contradict itself when it says God doesn't lie in Numbers 23:19, yet he sends a lie in caps spirit in First Kings 22, 23 and boasts about it, getting prophets to lie in Ezekiel 14.9, and then sends lies to unbelievers in 2 Thessalonians 2.10-11. So, yeah, I've addressed this in the past. Uh, one thing we need to remember about the Old Testament is oftentimes active verbal forms are used even for passive responses. We see this in Exodus 5, where Pharaoh puts upon heavy burdens upon the Israelites, and Moses says, why did you do this, God? Well, no, he just let Pharaoh do it. Sometimes God lets uh, certain spirits come in and do things. Like in First Thessalonians, it says about a powerful delusion coming. Uh, this is just God letting it happen. So in the biblical context, sometimes active verbal forms just represent passive responses. So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but also gar- God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But that, you know, active forms for passive responses. So uh, just keep that in mind. I th- I, there's a lot of various things on that. You got it. Are you guys able to hear my fan? Out here in my no. you are wow, fan free. That's, that's great. Okay. You don't have any fans, James. Yeah, I know. I was, I was gonna say your fans, the screaming ones in the background. It's, it's so hot in here wearing this suit <laughs> that I uh I turned my fan on. This one, Grays 174, says, How can the divine savior even be crucified given that his physical body was an illusion? Did I just read that? So that sounds like a Gnostic idea, the idea that, or a Docetist idea, the idea that he didn't have a real body. Uh, those were the first people to, to deny the crucifixion uh, and believing in substitution theory or something like it. Uh, but uh, that was that just sounds like a Gnostic idea. Jesus had a physical body. He came in the flesh. All the early sources support this. Gnostic text date to the second century or later, and they're denying the crucifixion for theological reasons, namely that they didn't think he, Jesus could suffer. So they put people, someone like Judas on the cross or Simon the Serene, that kind of stuff. Can I comment on that just two, two seconds? Sure. Uh, I think one of the main problems they have is the idea of a person being accursed who is a beloved of God. Uh, to be cursed, as I've mentioned before, is an attribute of Satan. Satan was cursed because he was put out of the love of God. And that is what it means to be cursed. It is the opposite of being brought close to God. And so your belief that Jesus, in actual fact, was a cursed of God, that he was cursed and put away from the Father, is um, is, is 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 contrary to the for our view, which is that Jesus was a beloved of God and he prayed to God and sought his help. It's also actually very contradictory to your own view, which is that Jesus was God, because how can you become distant from your own self? If Jesus was God and he was one with the Father, how did he become accursed from the Father when he was okay, the well, Father? 
Well, you know, we so believe it's, that it's, Adam and Eve were cursed, for example. So we believe humanity was cursed. Genesis 3 says they were cursed. Jesus, Galatians 3 says Jesus became that curse for us by taking on human flesh and then paying the penalty. So he became part of humanity at that point. So that's how he becomes a curse, by becoming part of humanity and then taking that curse upon himself. So he just, so this is what I don't understand. You know, I can't wrap my head around it. So the G, the God part of Jesus was not uh, cursed. The human part of Jesus was cursed. That's not and what I'm even saying. Though- no. This is this is far too more complicated. This is a whole other debate. You can read books like William Lane Craig on penal substitution or books by N.T. Wright if you want more on that. Uh, but this is the, the simple wanna, point we, is the simple point. I want to be respectful to James and his time here though because he's got a lot of questions. Yeah, that's fine. I, the simple point for me is that it's a pure contradiction. I actually would I would prefer with the Gnostics view if they had to choose between crucifying him to death and not crucifying. I'd prefer not crucifying because it condemns a a righteous man to a, a curse of God when he is apparently also God simultaneously. This one coming in from Ghost2409 says, True Islam UK. Jesus says, quote, My God, my God. He refers to Psalms 22. If you read <coughs> then Psalm 22, 16 through 18, you can see Jesus refers to it because it points to him. Because it points to him. The my father, quote unquote, prayer refutes Islam. Hey, James, real quick. I'll be back in like 10 seconds. You got it. Is that for me? I guess that's questions for me, isn't it? I since it yes, I think so. I mean, I, I always find it extraordinary that you have to read into the context and read in which psalm it's from, etc. When you if you but you don't even read the actual words and what they simply say. He says, "My father, my father, my 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 God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" Right? Why don't you just read the plain reading of it, which is that he believes that he was going to be saved, and therefore, and and yet he feels that he's dying, and he thinks therefore that God has forsaken him, and the question obviously, again, needs to be begged, which is that if he is actually God, how can he be forsaken by God? Can I say, oh, Tahir, Tahir, you're forsaking me when I am Tahir? This makes no sense. So this is why the the rational mind has an insurmountable problem in saying one is three and three is one. And the crucifixion is a moment in which all this comes together and and, and problem is compounded upon problem with statements of Jesus. Again, we're Trinitarians, not modalists, by the way. Matters Now says, I'm not convinced after the rebuttals. Looking forward to the open discussion. I am hosting an after show to discuss Great Debate Ozium. They don't say what side they're uh, unconvinced on. They, uh, <laughs> so it might be that uh, it's a teaser. So Thinking Monkey says, no winners or losers, just a nice, respectful debate. Thanks for that, Thinking Monkey. All credit to our guests linked below. Hector says, Allah doesn't forgive Sahi Muslim. 6665 Abu Masa reported that Allah's messenger said when it will be the day of resurrection Allah would deliver to every Muslim a Jew or a Christian and say that is your rescue from hellfire Ah, uh, yes that is in uh, Sahih Muslim yeah it talks about um that uh, yeah Jews and Christians are punished so Muslim like the he the, ma- the Muslims that have mountains of sin that's put on the Jews and Christians so we end up being uh, so it is a, a atonement theory. And if you take the Sahih Muslim, for example, yeah, there is atonement in there for sure. It's just Jews and Christians pay for the sins of Muslims. Uh, if I may. Yep. Um, absolute false. Uh, firstly, hadith can never be used to establish aqidah, which is belief. Only the Quran can. And the Quran very clearly states that on that day, no ransom shall be accepted from any soul, nor shall any intercession be given for it, nor shall any um any uh, bar to be taken for it the quran is absolutely clear that every person pays 
for their own sins and lives for their own sins. The statement of Sahih Muslim that a Muslim would be given a Jew or a Christian means that by virtue of the intercession of a Jew or a Christian or the prayers of a Muslim, certain Jews and Christians whom God wishes to forgive will forgive them through the prayers and the supplications of that particular individual. It has nothing to do whatsoever with um, sins being transferred. The Quran is absolutely clear that sins cannot be transferred. Uh, and the final point I make is that you should look at Surah Al-Baqarah, which is the second chapter of the Quran. Again, you have to look at the Quran for the beliefs, not the Hadith. And it says very clearly that Jews and Christians and those who believe in Allah, the one God, and the last day, and those who do good deeds, on them shall come no fear, nor shall they grieve. So the Quran is very clear that if you are a Jew or Christian and you reject the notion of Trinity or you reject the notion of other concepts and you adhere to the oneness of God and you believe in the day of accountability and you do good deeds for the sake of God, you have the possibility of paradise um, because that, in actual fact, are the basis of Islam. This one coming in from Joshua Wooden says, Occam's razor applies here. 2,000 years of Christianity blessing the world versus 1,400 years of suffering in Islam. The pattern of conduct is the root, not Jewish people. I'll give you a chance to respond to that, even though some of these yeah. are not super on topic. But I mean, real quick, I'd say I'd love to have a debate with someone on which is better for humanity, Christianity, Christianity or Islam. I will. I got some I'll studies. Do, I'll, I'll, do that. I'll do that debate any day of the week, buddy. I've got so any many day studies. of the week, James. Right. If you could sort that out, I'm very happy to do that debate. Cool. That sounds fun. You got it. Or, or, or actually, somebody else from my platform. I'm probably not the best person for that, actually. But somebody I else mean, from my platform. That's fine. I'm happy to anyway. Sure. I got a lot of research to go through, though. A lot, lot. Was it research like today's? Because if it was, it's... buddy, you need to possibly do read some more books. Anyway, I'm well, I read I'm a lot of books, but sociological <laughs> research specifically. Okay. So if I can just speak to that very quickly, James, it was a bit of a, an attack on the Muslim community in a way. Yes. I mean, if you look at everywhere, everywhere, Indonesia, Morocco, south of Spain, North Africa, still in Arabia, Iran, you will find the indigenous communities of all of those places still there. And you go to Indonesia, you don't find Arabs, you find Indonesians. You go to Morocco, you find Moroccans. They all are united by Islam and often by a common language or a base language, Arabic. But you find the indigenous population still ruling there. When you go to America, North America, you go to Canada, you go to Spain after the Reconquista, you go to Australasia, right? Um, you go to all of these places, whole continents, the indigenous people were wiped out, completely wiped out by, and it was often fueled by a Christian notion, which is that the white savior mentality, okay? So the fact of the matter is the facts of history speak for themselves, but all the places Islam spread, the indigenous population still are ruling there. All the places Christianity spread through Protestant movement and often through the Catholic movement as well, the whole of South America principally, the ruling classes became Europeans, European Christians. So I think that speaks for itself. And that's a broad Yeah, that's just a bivariate means comparison. It's it's fallacy. Uh, this would not be accepted as real research in any sociological study. Again, bivariate means comparisons do not work that well. You need to go on what actual multivariate analysis with robustness checks show. And again, you don't want me to bring those studies up. I got plenty. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Joshua Wooden strikes again, says, Occam's razor. Christ is the truth. Not knowing this is why there are so many. Let's see. Let's see, this easy principle, no cults. Uh, looking for something. Joshua, I hate to say it, man. I need something more on topic. Addison Weir says, what do you guys think of David Wood's recent video in which he argues that the Quran might actually teach Jesus's resurrection? 
Yeah, I mean, I read, uh, I, I mean, I, I've seen Khalil Andani make these arguments that the Quran could very well indicate that. And again, I'm not an expert on this, but I would appeal more to him. I thought he made a good case. So I'd refer people to that. It was on the Capture and Christianity channel. I saw him do it. You got it. I think it's just self-evidently false. I mean, he was not killed generally, nor was he killed through crucifixion, but he appeared to them as so. That simply says he was on the cross because if I say to you, if I say to you, you appear to be dead, or you, it's the same I say to Michael, Michael, you look so healthy today. I can't be looking at James and say Michael looks healthy. I have to actually be looking at Michael to say that he looks any way whatsoever. So when it says in the Quran that he appeared to them as though he was dead, it's a simple statement. It simply means he was on the cross, he looked dead, and then, but he wasn't. Because it says they did not kill him. It precedes the statement that he looked a particular way by saying they did not kill him. You Don't you it. lie, I look old. How dare you say I look healthy? I'm practically in the grave at this point. One foot in the grave even, maybe you could say. <laughs> <laughs> this one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Joshua Wooden says, we're going to, let me like vet those before. Apollo's Christian apologetics says Jesus rose because he's God, causation in parentheses, but epistemically he's God because he rose. No difference, no different than Muslim who says Quran is divine because of God, but you know Allah because of the Quran. So no, you don't know Allah because of the Quran. Actually, uh, the Quranic view is that every human being knows God internally because God is imprinted upon the soul of mankind, the unity of God. You got it. This one coming in from. Do appreciate this one as well. J. Dan says for both, why did Allah make it look like Jesus died? With this causing the biggest false religion in the world. Then Allah punishes Christians falling for this lie? So it's a great question. God didn't make it look like he died. God said that he appeared to them as dead when he was on the cross. But afterwards, when he was seen by everybody, guess what? Everybody conclu concluded he survived. That's why Jesus' message took off, is because they saw him, as Paul says, 500 saw him, and they therefore saw that he had not died. I mean, I belabor the point because it's, it's self-evident. If you see a person post an assassination attempt with the wounds of their assassination upon their body, it is a pre-foregone conclusion that they survived. There is no other hypothesis one would entertain. That is the only conclusion one would entertain. And that's why when he was asked, are you a ghost? He denied being a ghost. And then he proved the necessity of his human body by asking for fish and bread. It's funny that even Jesus and all the disciples said, oh, you, you came back to life. No one ever in the first century posited that he survived. It's only centuries later that we get this. So the, the actual thing they said was that he came back to life, not that he survived. So there's just no evidence in the first century that anyone believed that. Okay, well, I've, I've given my I've given my view on that, and we've gone through that. So. Joshua Wooden says, "Watchers get paper and record uh, record all fallacies from each side. Learned from <laughs> uh, learned this from Jesus. Expected to get their attention. You got it. I have no idea what that means. I don't either. Jay, this one coming in from Chris L says, "Such a cruel irony that let's see, uh, atheists under okay." Joshua Woods says, keep track of Shirk as he said, Isa is a false prophet. No, I didn't I say that. I don't think he said that. I don't think you said that. I never no. said that. I, I said Joshua that. Joshua was... Wooden, you're off the rails, man. You're just. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's uh... there, was, there, was a, there was a really interesting comment, if I may, James, read it out by an, a, one big YouTuber called Apostate Prophet, who is, who is logged in. I don't know if you saw his comment. Yeah, yeah, I know. But we'll comment? get to his, I promise. 
AP says, I hope you're behaving out there. This one from Punk Giver says, if Jesus was speaking metaphorically about being, quote, the son of man, unquote, how do you reconcile Mark 1462 when Jesus clearly references Daniel? Question for True Islam UK. Well, I'm I'm just pointing out that he was the son of, he was not the son of man because he was born of a virgin. It's a very simple point. If you're born of a virgin, you are not the son of a man. You might be the grandson of a man, but you're not the son of a man. And therefore, any usage of his term of the son of a man is evidently metaphorical. It cannot be literal. According yeah. to Christian theology. Uh, the word for man also means human, just so we know. That's how it was used in that context as well. Well, it's interesting because the Quran only refers to Isa as Isa ibn Maryam, which means Jesus, son of Mary. Okay, well, I mean, again, son of man is a title that we see from Daniel 7 about who the Messiah was going to be. It did not refer to his biological ancestors. No, I agree with that. That's absolutely fine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. My, my point is, is that if you're going to, uh, you, what Christians necessarily therefore take it metaphorically, to some extent, at least, because they mm -hmm. accept that he was not born of a man. They also have a secondary meaning, which they accept man as a term which is used for humanity. So that's the metaphorical aspect of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, then uh, my point is that you, you, you don't use the same for the son of God. That's my point. But, but, but we, we went through this and you said no, that. I, 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 you accept yeah, metaphorical as son of God as well. Yeah, I get that. That's fine. I appreciate that. You got it. This one coming in from Obey says, if the disciples didn't eventually understand why Christ needed to die, why did James not try to persuade Paul to preach some different, something different in Galatians 2? Right. Well, if you go to Acts 21, I mean, again, James just says he's on the same page with Paul. His issue is, hey, guys, or hey, Paul, it, these Jews believe you're telling Jews to stop following the law of Moses. Again, Paul doesn't say that. You go to 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you're of the circumcised, remain there. If you're of the uncircumcised, remain there. James then confirms exactly the same thing in verse 25. As for the Gentiles, we sent them this letter that we see in Acts 15, that they do not have to become strict Jews. There are certain things they should need to follow, which goes back again to what we see in Genesis 9, where the covenant God makes with Noah, and he gives all these commands to all of humanity. The Jews had a specific covenant. They kept following. James followed. Paul followed. But the Gentiles didn't have to. They followed the, the covenant we see they were given to Noah. You got it. And folks, if, if you I haven't can... yet, go ahead. No, no, go on. Do your thing. Sorry. No, you're good. Please, what have you got? In 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul actually says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. Right? Yeah, you're that's what, that's, what he, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians. Now, we know that Paul was in actual fact a Jew. And yet he himself says in his own letters that he, that the law did not apply to him. He says, though not my, being myself under the law, I assume the garb of the law so that I may win them over. So he, he openly accepts that he's a hypocrite. Okay, He openly accepts that there is a difference between his word and his deed, and his belief and his heart and his actions. Right, And he himself says that he, being a Jew, did not practice, uh, was not under the law. So I don't know what this argument is that, oh, Paul and James had no difference. Paul himself behaved in a way which was contrary to James's stipulated statement, and which is why James required him to repent publicly of his doctrines, which he did. So Paul publicly repented of modern-day Christian doctrines. So I'm not sure where you're getting this from, that Paul never advocated uh, Jews for not following 
the law. And I would put it to you now. Do you tell Jews who become Christian, do you tell them they have to continue to follow all of the laws of Moses? Again, I, I agree with the YouTube channel, two Messianic Jews who were on my channel about this, that yes, Jewish Christians still follow the Torah. And again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, if you're of the circumcised, remain there. In 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about punishments. And there's been a lot of scholarly work on this, which I don't have time to go into, but this is entirely irrelevant. Why does he, in the why very does chapter he... you cited, 1 Corinthians or Acts 21, James agrees with Paul in verse 25. So why does he say in 920, I put it to you, though not myself being under the law? He's talking about the punishments. The same thing we see with the issue in Ephesians 2. Yeah, I mean, there's always an interpretation, a... not a plain reading. The plain reading is he says, I'm not under the law. He says, I Well, if you're talking about plain reading, Jesus died. That's the plain reading of the Gospels you're denying. So if you want to talk about interpretation, no, we can do that all day. No, that's not a plain reading. We've gone yes, it that. is. The plain reading is a man seen after crucifixion with the wounds means he's alive, means he survived. And John, the plain reading of John 19 says he died. All right, okay. This one We've coming through from... That. Do appreciate it. Joshua Wooden strikes again. He says, <laughs> Pedori, it's, it's more related to what we talked about. He says, John 858 says, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't understand how you can say this without gymnastics. Yeah, you go to Psalm 92 in the Septuagint. It says, before the mountains were, and then it says, you are. If that, if you, in the Greek, that is a perfect way to say what Jesus is saying just in third person. So Jesus is saying it in first person in John 8, 58. So again, Psalm 92 in the Septuagint, before the mountains were, a couple other things, and then you are. And that just is third person, what we see in first person structure, uh, construction in John 8, 58. You got it. And folks, we are close to 600 likes. If we get to 600 likes, I will put up a mildly insulting poll toward apostate prophet. I really <laughs> want to do this. Something something to do with how much soy he consumes. I don't know. By the way, folks, did you notice I always love these new YouTube features? You can like a person's super chat now. So if you agree with their super chat, you can click like on it. How neat is that? This one coming in from Addison Wire says, True Islam UK, you seem, let's see. They say, you're very charming, very respectful. And uh, they say, I like you more than Ali Dawa. Poor Ali Dawa. So it's like, they say, oh, why man, is I, I've that? Got, say, I've got no time. I've got no time for Ali Dawa whatsoever. You are, you are, you are a million times better than Ali Dawa. <laughs> Juicy. Oh, poor. What if he's watching? <laughs> this one, Kita, thanks for your super chat. Let me know if you do attach a question. Awesome. Can, awesome. I, can I respond to that very briefly? Go ahead. So the first first thing is, as for apostate prophet, I mean, you know, I'm also very happy, James, if you want to ever organize a debate with him on atheism or anything, we're most, most happy to do so. But the key thing I want to say about Ali Dawah is, you know, he espouses un-Islamic views, in my view, uh, in the Ahmadiyya viewpoint in particular, we do not believe that there is any worldly punishment for apostasy. And this is a, a major fallacy that Muslims have got wrong in the modern day. There is no documented evidence of the Prophet Muhammad ever killing a single person for leaving the faith. And the Quran makes it clear multiple times that a person can believe and then disbelieve and then believe and then disbelieve and then believe and then disbelieve a third time. And the only punishment they all receive is the one in the hereafter, God. So the Quran is absolutely clear that, in, obviously, if you can believe and disbelieve three times, then that's obviously false if the punishment for death is uh, for disbelief is death, because you die the first time, you wouldn't be able to believe and disbelieve again. So, you know, there's so many arguments made like that. And I really despise the way some Muslims, unfortunately, butcher the Quran. Uh, and make it into a, a very hateful book when it is not is a book of which establishes peace in the world. That's an actual fact, the reality of Islam. You got it. This one coming in from uh, that that one. 
Abri Van Zill says Jesus allowed man born blind that he healed to worship him. In John 9, verse 38. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Yeah, I mean, okay. yes. Is that for me or for Jet Michael? I think they're saying like that the Gospels are suggesting that Jesus is God. I think that's what they're trying to say. Uh, that's the underlying message. You just have to read between the lines a little bit. Yeah, there, there are instances where people tried to bow down to him uh, and he picked them up from the ground. Where he told, for example, there is the lady who who grabbed at the hem of his hem of his cloak, for example. Um, but there aren't any these this word. We have to always go back to the original Greek and look at what it means. Sometimes these meanings can mean praise a person. Uh, for example, the word Lord, as has been pointed out by Michael, was not just used just for Jesus. The word Lord is often used for multiple figures in the Bible and for multiple things. But it's the same word that's also used for God. So we have to ask the question: Did whether if people worship Jesus spontaneously in the moment, that's that's a separate question. I said something different. I said Jesus never solicited worship. He never said to any of his disciples, "Bow down and worship me." He always said, "Bow down and worship the Father." And if there was no difference between him and the Father, then the question is: Then why did he do that? You got it. This one coming in well, from. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. No, that's good. You got it. They say question for Muslim. <laughs> In other words, Tahir, they say, hypothetically, if the Bible is true, does it concern you at all that you would, in fact, be an enemy of the actual, quote-unquote, Christ? I'm sorry, can you say that again? I missed that. If no the problem. Bible say, is true. If the Bible is true, does it concern you at all that you would, in fact, be an enemy of the actual Christ? Um, no, it wouldn't. And I'll tell you why. Because the Old Testament clearly states that Jesus, that God does not die. Uh, it states that in multiple places. I can bring up the quotes if you want. Um, uh, you know, I'll bring them up in a moment if you wish. Uh, does God die according to Old Testament? Okay. Um, well, well, let's see what, what we have here. Um, it's very clearly stated in, in the Old Testament that God does not die. So on the day of judgment, I suppose that's the question you're asking me when I'm presented for Jesus with his holes in his hands and his feet. And he says, why did you not accept my sacrifice for me? What answer will you give? Right. I'll say very simply. You said explicitly in the Old Testament that you don't die. And then you go ahead and die and pretend that you're God. Which one am I to believe? I believe the one that came first. I believe the one that was absolute. I believe the one that didn't indicate other th otherwise, right? I believe in the absolute statements that you made in the Old Testament. So that's the answer I'm going to give to God. But the question I have for you, in actual fact, and to the speaker, is that if you have violated the Old Testament statements, which is you are to take no gods for God beside the one, which is the first commandment. What answer will you give to God when God says, why did you not believe I could forgive you without atonement, without punishment? Why did you not? Why did you worship and bow down before a man? Why did you worship before graven images? Why did you worship before statues of Jesus? Why did you worship before all these things? That's the question that God will ask you, I'm sure. Where is the verse that says God cannot die? Okay, I'll, I'll bring it up, sure. You go on with the questions. I'll I'll get that up. Amelia says, "Question." Uh, that one's for you. So I'm going to save that one for you. Let me find one here that are ones for Mike. I don't know who this is for. They say the raise 174 says the jinns convinced Paul to ruin the original Islamic Christianity. It did such a good job that we don't even have any sources or evidence they even existed. I'm sorry. 
They said the jinns convinced Paul, and we might want to tell if you explain jinns for people if they're new, convinced Paul to ruin the original Islamic Christianity. I think they're being sarcastic, but I can't tell. I are think they? they are. Okay. I'm not sure. Let me. I'm still trying to get up the Old Testament. Father does not die. I've seen them. I read them the other day. So I just want to get them out. Um, let's see if we can get it up. Um, the jinn. I, I mean, I don't think the the question is really even worth answering. In all honesty, but the jinn are basically um, uh, simply is a word in Arabic which means that which is hidden. It does not necessarily mean spirits or genie or demons. It means that which is hidden. So the word jannah, which is paradise, it comes from the word jinn because paradise is hidden. Um, uh, you know, the 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 women women in society are often referred to as jinn in Arabic because they are usually veiled and so they're hidden. And so jinn simply refers usually when it says jinn and men in the Quran, it actually mainly refers to that class of society which are above and beyond other society, other people like celebrities, the 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 rulers who are beyond the sight of the ordinary people and therefore they are hidden. That's an actual fact, the main meaning of jinn given in the Quran. So no, the jinn didn't convince Paul. It was only his unfortunate, um, sorry, spiritual state that made him a hypocrite and go against Jesus' original messing. So I've got some quotes from uh, from, from the Bible, from the Old Testament, that, that God cannot die. Um, uh, sorry, so here we go. Um, uh, sorry, uh, I typed in the Father. I meant, the, I meant this. I meant God. Let me just bring it back up. Go on to the next question. I'll get up for you. You got it. And in the meantime, folks, got to let you know that poll is doing well. It's in the live chat right now. How much soy does apostate profit consume per day? <laughs> uh, the the options range from one to two soy lengths, which is like a soy protein shake, like on-demand shake, and all the way up to all the soy. Currently with 67% of the votes right now. There are hundreds that have voted on that. Uh, Harris Palmer says, if Jesus came to India, why was Muhammad unaware of this? Um, so that's that's a great question. Um, I've got the quote now. 1 Timothy 6.16 God is the that's... only one who ne well, God is the only one who never dies. That's in the New Testament. That, that is in the New Testament. You're quite right. I do apologize. I do have one from the Old Testament as well, which I'll get up in a minute. I'm just struggling with doing it at the same time as everything because my internet's not very good and doesn't seem to be loading quickly. Um, you mean, you so, know he's talking about the Father there, right? Yeah, well, that's the problem. You, you, you make rules for the Father and then make different rules for the Son and then say that they're the same person. So that's, well, that's to me, is the fundamental think the Father became human. They don't think the Father became flesh. So, yeah, there is, there is a distinction. No, well, well, I mean, then they're not one. If there's a distinction between them, they're not one. This is the fundamental problem that people, Christians face, is that if there, is, if there are three beings and they're actual one, then there is redundancy. You don't need two of them because they're all the not same. Not being modalism. And if, there is, can... if there is, if there is a perfect equality between all of them, then there's redundancy. And if there isn't a perfect equality between all of them and one is beneath the other, then it means the one beneath the other is not God. So then you have a demigod, you don't actually have God. So this is the problem. This is the, the tug of war in Christianity between redundancy and hierarchy, which in actual so, fact So real exists. quick, I will just say I debunked all this in an interview I did on Reason Answers Apologetics on the Trinity, and I show using philosophy of mind and basic logic. No, this is not a logical issue. This makes perfect sense if you start using language from philosophy of mind, because within philosophy of mind, you can have multiple persons that are one being, and it can be completely logically coherent. 
I've also, I also want to ask you a question. So you mentioned the New Testament, that that quote from 1 Timothy is from the New Testament, but why is that not applicable? So 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God is the only one who never dies. So please, could you square the circle with that for me? Because if you read the letter of 1 Timothy, he's clearly talking about the Father there. God is a title for the Father throughout this entire book. Okay, so different rules again for Father and Son, and yet equality between them and equalness, and that they're the same being. And because that was the basis of you saying atonement, that, that God forgives, because he took mm -hmm. the shame of patting guilt upon himself. But now you're saying that there are different rules for one or the other. So they're obviously no, not the I'm... same thing. If one can die and the other one can't, that's a pretty big rule. That's a pretty big rule to be different upon. If, if my well, broken die geez. and I don't die, it's not really reasonable to say we're the same being, does, is it now? Well, again, one Jesus is the extinction of life. One is the extinction of life, and the other one is the continuation of life forever. Yeah, because Jesus became human, and then his body died, and then he went back to his father. Same thing as what happened word when we die. The father didn't become human, so he doesn't die. Yeah, I know you... It, it, I'm sorry, but to any logical, rational mind, it simply doesn't make sense. Because to say the father became human, didn't become human, but the son became human, is in itself to posit a fundamental difference between the two. One took on weakness yeah. and earthly necessity, and the other one was, was, was perfect for all time and didn't die. And so one took on all the attributes which are contrary to godhood, and the other one didn't take on the, could maintain the attributes of godhood, and yet they're simultaneously the same being. So again, again this see, is see my interview. contradiction this is... multiple times. Again, see the interview. This is not the debate, but I covered that all in that fine. interview I That's mentioned fine. where it's all basically covered in using philosophy of mind. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Gerald Anthony says, T.I., true Islam, in UA closing statement, you pointed that uh, you pointed out that IP is approaching the subject from a Christian lens and you do it historically. What sources support UA position? What sources support my position outside of the Bible or in the Bible? I think they mean any at all. Well, I mean, I've gone through quite a lot. I mean, I've gone through the Bible. So briefly, in terms of extra-biblical sources, I'll go through a few of those. There's the Hindu scripture, which mentions Jesus in 78 AD to 102 AD. Maybe she missed that particular point. I can show the slide again if she wishes, or you're happy to, James, where it basically says in Hindu scriptures, completely nothing to do with Christianity or Islam, that Jesus, that a person who was called Isha the Messiah, Isha Messiah, who was born of a virgin, called himself the Son of God, who was fair-skinned, who was persecuted in another land and fled uh, to the land of Kashmir, um, was in actual fact, um, uh, whose religion was love, truth, and purity of the heart, is what he said. So these, these characteristics only fit Jesus. And he was met with by a king, who was the King Shalivana, who only ruled from 78 AD to 102 AD. And that's mentioned in the book Bahavisya Mahapurana, which is written in Sanskrit, got nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Christianity. The only individual in human history who ever claimed to be born of a virgin was the son of God and was persecuted in that age was Jesus. But what Michael will say, and I'll, I'll preempt it if I may, Michael, he'll say that that's got nothing to do with whether he died on the cross because he could have died on the cross and then migrated and gone to India, just like the Mormons believe that he went to America. To me, it's very clear. It's a contradiction of the Bible and Luke, where it says he went up to heaven and ascended to heaven, um, and that he's been sitting there on the right hand of God for all eternity since then. Um, and to me, it speaks of a man who is fulfilling Isaiah 53, which is that he, God shall prolong his days. This is something that Michael hasn't actually addressed, and I would be grateful if Michael could. It says in Isaiah 53 that you know God will prolong this person's days who is suffering, the suffering servant, and he shall see his seed. Now, when you say somebody's life will be prolonged, it's self-evident, that it doesn't mean he'll die and then his life will be prolonged because everybody gets well, an eternal life after death. Okay, well, I'll address it really quick. Prolonged beforehand. Yes, please. 
Okay, I mean, Isaiah 53, 7 says he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, refers to being cut off from the land of living in verse 8. So if you want to take that literally, he was led to the slaughter, he was slaughtered, and he was cut off from the land of the living. Again, these are typological prophecies. The suffering servant is Israel. Jesus fulfills that in a typological sense, the same way he fulfills other typological prophecies. There's a whole discussion on this in Craig Blomberg's book, The Reliability of the Gospels. Uh, John Wenham also discusses this at times. So again, if we're going to take things literally, we're just going to cherry pick. But again, I'm going to go on what the first century sources say. Jesus died, resurrected, and then ascended. And even if even if the second two are wrong, he still overwhelmingly says that they, he died multiple times. So there's no first century source that says Jesus went to India. So J James, they're, they're, they're all, anyway, there are, but never mind. The the J James, if I may, there is a clear statement in the Bible in the Old Testament as well as I've mentioned. Timothy mentions that God doesn't die. The Old Testament also says the same Psalm ninety two, uh, ninety, and then uh, colon two. Uh, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? From everlasting to everlasting. What that means is you can't have an intermission in everlasting where you don't exist anymore because you're dead. Okay. Well, then Isaiah, we're equivocating on the word dead because Jesus didn't cease to exist when he died. His body just died. Right. Um, again, so this is, this is again, more kind of wordplay, I would say, where yeah. we call it, you know, it's wordplay. It's basically... Yeah. You know, it's something that Paul did, and actually Paul pioneered this kind of uh, virtual reality world where Jesus inhib inhabits multiple realms simultaneously, but only in the heads of Christians. Um, it doesn't. There's no indication in the Bible of any of that. A plain reading of it indicates a man who is suffering, but then it's interpreted that the man is dying, but the God part of him isn't. Um, where they get that from, uh, no. I don't know, really. No, because the hypostatic union says that you know when you die, you don't go to existence. Your spirit goes on. Where's the hypostatic yeah. union stated clearly by Jesus? Again, it's stated clearly by Jesus. Yeah, I mean, again, I Jesus do. claims to be God, but he's also human. So, I mean, you see it throughout the Gospels, Gospel of John. It's always throughout there. He's clearly a man, but he's also God. Okay. Well, can I just make this point, which is that the Quran, for example, multiple times makes statements which in which the Prophet Muhammad is described as his hand is the hand of God. For example, if you read the Buddhist literature, Buddha says that he is a representative of God. Some people, he also makes very similar statements of I am the way, the truth, and the light. He also makes very similar statements that he is, to know him is to know God. Now, all messengers from God in all religions, they all use this metaphorical language of total union with God. It doesn't mean they are God. It That's means pulling the context from other and different cultures. I hate to do this. Because I prefer to take the context of Jesus' own Jewish culture. Sorry, James. Be quick here, we've got a... This one coming in from... Sorry, James. We no, just can't right. help it. That's no problem. This one from Joshua Wooden, our, our old pal. He says, <laughs> most used fallacy, false equivalency, and false dilemma. They say, well done, Michael. Other side, thanks for coming, and it was a great debate. Let's see. They say, they say, hey, you're a strong debater. So they're giving you some street cred. Gerald Anthony says, T-I. Oh, we got that one. Let me just. First sure maybe. Hmm? True Islam, maybe T.I. Is that what this is referring to? Oh, yeah, that one. I just realized that we had read that one. But let's get to this one from Aubrey. Thanks very much. Says you used a prophecy in Isaiah 53 about Messiah. It says he will die in verse nine. He was assigned a grave mm -hmm. with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Yeah, I mean, that's that's again, I, I don't take that as uh, people considered him to be dead. People believed he was dead. His disciples all fled everywhere. Um, and this is why, as I mentioned in my in my talk, when Jonah says that I am, uh, I will call to you from the land of the dead, 
everybody understood it to mean, and most people, perhaps other than Michael, understood it to mean that Jonah was one foot in the grave and he was in the land of the dead in the same way that the daughter of Jairus was uh, thought to be dead. People were mourning and wailing outside a room and Jesus goes in there and what does he do? He says, she is not dead, she is sleeping, right? So she was in a coma-like state and he brought her out of it through his presence, through his holy touch. So again, I don't see it problematic for me that it's described as him having the tomb of the rich uh, and the wicked in his death, because that refers to what the people's perception of him was. And this is also part of the meaning to be risen from the dead. And going back a little bit to a separate point, you know, we should also remember that that David, uh, if we're going back to the, but perhaps if this comes up in a son of God question again, I'll bring this up actually. I don't want to mix two topics. Yeah, well, I was just remember verse verse seven says he was led to like lamb like a slaughter. Verse eight says he was cut off from the land of the living, not yes. put not put in the grave. Verse nine says he was in death. It says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. It says and then, death right there. Yeah, this is metaphorical, poetical language in the same way that Jonah. Well, then said. so is the offspring aspect. No. Then it's no, it's not the because <laughs> no, because you can't. What offspring? And what? How? You, what prolonging his days? How can you prolong yeah, that, his days? Who dies? The That's next metaphorical language. It's metaphorical no, 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 language. No, 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 no. You have to demonstrate the metaphor. The metaphor is very clear that if people perceive him to be dead, then you can describe him as one who is as if he has died, one who is dead. This is why Jonah says, I, I was called upon you from the land of Shale. It doesn't mean that he, in actual fact, was in Shale. It meant that he was in a state akin to death. He was Again, in if you're just going to say whatever you want in metaphorical language, I'm going to say the same thing about whatever you say then. Just double standard except that i have a legitimate reason to say that <laughs> forgive me <laughs> this one coming in from amelia says question for true islam in john nineteen eighteen, who is the one in the middle that has been crucified in verse 30 he gave up his ghost that's, that's all they say i don't even understand the question perhaps my so in, in the gospels it does say that he gave up his spirit gave up his ghost yeah. in the synoptics so it, it's basically a common term you would use to say somebody died. And that's what basically every scholar would say about this. I, it it look, refers so, to him giving up the ghost. I fully agree with you, Michael. I'm, you know, I, I want to emphasize the point to the viewers. Maybe they've come a bit later into this discussion. I don't deny that the gospel writers believed that he had died. That's not, that's not and, and the gospel narrative is that he had died. What I'm saying is that they are mistaken. What I'm saying is, is that these were interpolated, back interpolated by a lot of the followers of Paul you look at the Gospel of Thomas, for example, it doesn't have this narrative. There's lots of other Gospels which were redacted from the Bible uh, in the Council of Nicaea, which we, we haven't really gone into or touched any of that. But these four Gospels are four Gospels from a particular wait, group's narrative. Wait, what about the Nicaea? What about Nicaea? Sorry, not, not, not Council of Nicaea. There was another one, sorry. Um, in okay, which the, yeah. The, 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 sorry, I do apologize. Um, in, that was the one where um, Constantine accepted Christianity. So that, there, were, there, were, there were several councils, in fact, not just one in which decisions were made as to which Gospels to keep in the Bible or not. And these were the ones which were of the group of Paul, St. Paul, um, and his group believed that Jesus had died for the sins of mankind. So it's not surprising that the Gospels should give that view, because. but there are other Gospels that do not give that view, but they were thrown out for no good reason, fundamentally. Other than the fact well, they, were they were thrown out because they date to the 2nd and 3rd century. Yeah, okay. So uh, we can disagree on that, and perhaps we can have another debate on that. That's absolutely fine. But the point I want to make is that we're not disagreeing. I don't disagree with you that he said, it says that he gave up the ghost and that the gospel writer believed that he came out from the dead. I don't disagree with that. What I'm saying is that the facts, the events of the crucifixion have a different interpretation, which is that he had 
survived and that the narrative that he died is not one which is evidenced because when you look at a person post-assassination attempt who is walking around with his wounds, it means he is alive. And that's what Jesus prayed for. I'm working on a video which will be out in June called Mark, an eyewitness account, where I argue that Mark's source was Peter. And so this would be another chain of evidence. And there's a lot of really good evidence for that. So how, how is Peter, out, out of curiosity, just perhaps you can explain to me now, how is Peter an eyewitness to anything when it says clearly in the Gospels that all the disciples fled at the time of the crucifixion? He's the eyewitness to the ministry is my point. The eyewitness okay. of Jesus about the crucifixion and the crucifixion? No, that would be John, the beloved disciple who said he was at the cross. So was he a disciple? Because it says all the yes. disciples fled. Yeah, all of his 12 disciples fled. I think that was John Mark who became John the Elder. You can see Luke Vandeweghe's book, um, Living Footnotes on the Gospels, where he points out that that's most likely the John, because there were multiple Johns. So Richard Bauckham, Luke Vandeweghe, we argue this was John Mark who was there, not John, the son of Zebedee. So the strongest and most beloved disciples fled, but the lower disciples who were newer, they didn't flee. Yeah. Right, that, makes, so, that doesn't make much sense to me. But anyway, we, that's a separate question. Perhaps. This one coming in from Unapologetic. Apologetic says they didn't see a totally ripped apart body. They saw a glorified body when he rose. Why would they be happy about a zombie-like resurrection body? I'm confused. I don't believe he had a zombie-like resurrection body. I believe he had a body which was the same pre-crucifixion with wounds. He was a person who'd gone through an assassination attempt and had survived. And so he still had the wounds on his hands and on his legs. And they were joyful because they thought he had dead, was died. I lost my ability to speak English at this time of the night. They had, he had, he had, he, they were joyful because they saw that their beloved master was still alive. If you met your father after you thought that he had been assassinated and hey, presto, he's actually alive, I think you'd probably be pretty happy to see him. This one from Ozian Talks says, Atheism won. Still not sure if Jesus was crucified. <laughs> Apostate prophet says, I wish all debaters were like Tahir and Mike, not clowns like Daniel and AP. That was definitely a juicy debate, but I've got to tell you folks, if you haven't watched their recent debate, it's worth watching. Daniel Hukikachu, Muslim skeptic, against apostate prophet. It, there was no clowning around. It was uh, hot and heavy. It was a slobber knocker. Joshua Wooden, <laughs> it was amazing. says, Doctor, you say water does not surround the lungs? No, I never said that. Yeah. Hector says, true Islam should debate IP on what is better for mankind, Christianity or Islam. It could be a two versus one if he wants a fellow, am I saying this right, sheikh to assist him? Sorry. I'm not a sheikh in the first place, so getting a fellow sheikh would be even harder. But he says, yeah, I take his his kind point for calling me a sheikh. It's very kind of him. So they could bring Sheikh Yabudi. Is that a, that's a person? I don't know who that is, and nor would I, I probably I, bring him. I could never be a shake. White people have no rhythm. We don't know how to move our hips. <laughs> this one from Obey. I'm with, you, I'm with you there, Michael. I'm the same. Let's say two. Tahir, why is Jesus the second Adam? He's the second Adam because Adam was born of a virgin too. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Got that one from Abri. Hey, I, A, says for the... Tahir, if you say Jesus can't be God because God can't die, by your standard, Jesus must be God because in the Quran, he's the only human to never die. (laughs) Jesus is, oh my God, this is so delicious. (laughs) 
All my Ahmadi friends are probably looking at this, killing themselves, laughing right now. Jesus is mentioned to have died in the Quran more than all other individuals put together. There are 30 verses of the Quran which state that he is dead. Muhammad is only a messenger. Verily, the messengers before him passed away. The immediately preceding messenger was, Muhammad, was Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 145. There are so many was, verses I can give to you. Sorry? Is it 3, 155, I thought? 145. But in, the, okay. in, some, in some Qurans where the Bismillah is not counted the first verse, you'll find it as 3, 144. Uh, I mean, Jesus okay. is mentioned in the Quran as having died more than literally anyone else, right? Multiple verses from every angle is described him as having died already. So, uh, you know, this is unfortunately a, uh, a misconception. Uh, a lot of Muslims have this misconception too. Um, so I don't blame your speaker and I don't mean in any way to offend her or him by laughing. I wasn't laughing at the person. I was just, I was just amused by the idea. I would say that is a thousand times more reasonable than those traditional Sunni idea that Jesus didn't die and there was a substitution. I, I completely theory. agree. I actually think in some ways there's good reason in my view to believe that the Sunni idea of substitution theory is more absurd than it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's more absurd than my view than the Christian view, but I, I mean, it really gets up there with absurdity because in, in a way it is because Every, like all the historical works say that a person named Jesus was put on the cross and people saw him there. So then to start arguing that, oh, no, somebody else, then that is actually an act of trickery on behalf of God for putting somebody else who looked like Jesus there and also an act of idiocy on the part of people that they couldn't tell one person from another. Um, so I'm completely with you there. But this is for me, this is not based, well, not for me. It's, it's a fact. It's nowhere in the Quran. The Quran is completely against it. The Quran gives the soon theory very clearly, as I've demonstrated. And in actual fact, I'll stop on because I've been talking too much. But in actual fact, the um, the this is actually a Christian idea which came into Islam. You see, the Christian idea Gnostic. of the ascension, the Christian idea of the ascension was brought into Islam, but they couldn't accept that Jesus died on the cross because the Quran is so clear that he didn't. And so they got rid of they put the ascension prior to the crucifixion. Does that make sense, Michael? Yeah, scholars speculate it may be a Gnostic idea, the whole substitution idea, but that's all very possibly. Topic. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Otto says, what would you say to the representatives of religions who don't believe in Jesus's or Muhammad's divinity? Will they go to hell? So Muhammad well, wasn't divine? Yeah. So Michael, uh, Michael, Michael, why don't you go first? I, I would say it... it do I, I here's the thing about Christianity. We don't say who and who is not going to hell. Only God knows and only God can judge properly. Uh, like what he, Jesus says in John 9, 41 and 15, 22, if I had not come, they would not be guilty. But now that I've come, they have no excuse. So God judges everyone properly. Uh, I cannot say somebody is part of the body of Christ if they deny Jesus's divinity. Uh, I think that's very clearly taught in the Bible. You can see books like Jesus Among the Gods by Michael F. Byrd, for example, or Putting Jesus in His Place by Robert jo Bowman Jr. and Ed Komaszewski. If you understand the ancient Jewish context, Jesus taught he was God over and over again by constantly citing Old Testament passages, doing things that only God could do that the Old Testament says only God could do. So there's just numerous references to that. You got it. If I may, um, Muhammad was not God. We do not believe any God can be incarnate into any human form. Um, God is immaterial and beyond and beyond and beyond us entirely and can never die. Um, we also, I would share very much with Michael's uh, view that we cannot condemn anyone to God. The judgment is in the hands of God alone. And no human being can call another human being uh, hellbound. 
And in fact, the Prophet Muhammad was explicit on this, that this is actual fact, an act of attributing partners with God as if you are God. So it's an actual fact, a greater sin on your part than even uh, anything else that they could do. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Abri Van Zyl says, True Islam, you use prophecy in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah. It says he will die in verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And we got that one. Sorry, I've already read that. Let me see. I think we're getting to the close to the bottom of the list. Abri sent another one. They say, what did Jesus mean in John 10, 17? The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. 18, no one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, says Jesus. Yeah, this is the full word. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. So this falls very much in line with the idea Jesus died and rose and monarchical Trinitarianism, which is the idea that Jesus does have the authority to do these things because he is ontologically God as he does proceed from the Father or is begotten of the Father. If I may, um, James. Of course. There's nothing in that that you know indicates a death. To lay down your life and be willing to lay down your life is an act which any human being can do for another one if they see them in danger. If you go and uh, help somebody who is being mugged, in a sense, you have put your life, we call it in English, we call it putting your life on the line, okay? This doesn't mean that you, in actual fact, did die. To, to lay down your life and take it up again is actually a prophecy that it will, that I will put myself or I will be willing to put myself in the position of grave threat whereby people will consider me to have died, but in actual fact, my life will be taken up. This is poetical, metaphorical language. It's extraordinary that in everything Christians accept the Jesus spoken parables, when it comes to his actual crucifixion prophecies, all the parables go out the window all of a sudden. Um, is so, there any um, any Greek references where this phrase means not dead? Like any comparison? To lay down your text? life? Yeah, I, any Greek I don't have that know? before me. I don't have that before me, I'm afraid. Okay. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Joshua Wooden says, <laughs> <laughs> Again! He says, why is, is there a, why is there a poll about AP and soy? AP beat Daniel. This one from <laughs> Cheeky. Cheeky, I think they're saying. Is it maybe it's pronounced shaky? They say, Well done, IP. God bless you. Lavelle says, Who was Adam's virgin mother, please? Um, so the Quranic view is that Adam is not the first man. The Quranic view is that Adam is the first prophet of this cycle of humanity and that there have been many, many cycles of humanity, each cycle being 7,000 years long approximately, and that the Adam of our particular cycle um, is the Adam of our particular cycle and that there before, before hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, there have been multiple cycles of humanity and that the Quran says about Jesus, it says the case of Adam in reference to the virgin birth in particular, it says the case of Jesus is as the case with Adam. Uh, God said to him, be, and he was. So the way in which Jesus was produced through a virgin birth is also the chronic view on how Adam was produced. And you got sorry, it. one last thing. Adam is described in the Quran as a khalifatul arg, which means a khalif or a successor in the earth, which means there were human beings who preceded him. It's just that they did not had not received divine revelation. He was the first in, the, in this cycle of humanity to receive divine revelation, to be appointed as a prophet. You got it. Did I read this one? They say, did the angel lie in Matthew 28, 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, quote, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. 
There you will see him. Now I have told you. Again, risen from the place of the dead is how I would understand that. And again, the metaphorical language is not only in reference to his existence coming back from near death or a state which was akin to death, but also his mission was resurrected. We have to remember that. The whole point of killing Jesus was to kill his mission. It wasn't actually about killing him. It was to prove that he was accursed of God. So when he was risen, it also means that his mission was risen because it was proven that he was not accursed of God, that his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was accepted, that the prophecy of Isaiah 53, that he will see his days lengthened and see his seed was fulfilled. Ark has a question for Mike. They say, for inspiring philosophy, are any of the authors you quoted eyewitnesses, and what proof do we have of that? Yeah, uh, John is an eyewitness. Uh, uh, you can check out Craig Blomberg's book, uh, the reliability of the Gospel of John, uh, Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that John is an eyewitness. I'll be doing a video on that as well. I'm going to go do one on each gospel because um, uh, as well, Luke interviewed eyewitnesses as Luke Vandeway's work uh, shows, as well as uh, John J. Peter's uh, book on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so there's a lot of really good evidence for this. So yeah, I do think John was an eyewitness at the cross. It wasn't John the son of Zebedee in my view. It was John Mark who became John the Elder. You got it. This one coming in from joshua wooden says you said you hung on a tree means false prophet as he is accursed and i mean no offense you both did well even you james thank you and in terms of you saying that jesus was hung on a tree means that he was a false prophet i'll give you a chance to respond to that tahir so, so what I meant was that it says in the, it says in the Bible in Deuteronomy, as I quoted, that he who is hung on the wood is accursed of God, and accursed, obviously, it cannot be a prophet of God and be accursed. To be accursed is an attribute of Satan, as I've mentioned. It means to be put out of the love of God, put away from the love of God, put, a, put away the love from God altogether. And so you cannot say that a prophet who speaks in God's name and is his messenger and emissary and representative is necessarily going, is going to be accursed. Because how can a person select somebody as their representative, and yet that representative be accursed, be put away from them. By definition, that person is their representative and therefore near them. You got it. Thanks very much for your question. This one coming in from Jason V says, assuming Jesus got off the cross alive, how likely is it that he walked blocks on pierced feet? Isn't it more likely that Jesus would say, ouch, instead of, quote, my Lord, when Thomas touched him? Yeah, and it also says that Jesus had nail marks in his hands. It's just it'd be kind of ad hoc to say they didn't pierce his feet. That would just be expected given the cultural context and what we hear about it. He could have been on a he could have been on a mule. He could have been on a horse. I mean, there's quite a lot of possibilities here that we are not really possibilities and probabilities. But it's I find I still find it well. I mean, if you're going to talk about probabilities and possibilities, you should really really think about resurrecting from the dead as whether it's a possibility or not. I mean, it's very again. I come out. It's very strange to me that. Somehow, a person walking on a mule with injured feet is somehow extraordinary, but a person coming back from the dead, well, that, that sounds like evidence-based medicine to me. Well, I mean, I say it was a miracle that Jesus came back. I don't say he naturally came back. I say it's naturally unlikely that he would have been able to walk on pierced feet. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Truth Finder says, true Islam, the Quran said Jesus was never killed nor crucified. Crucifixion mm. means hanging someone on a pole. Jesus ever hanged on the cross but didn't die that falsifies either the quran or your argument sorry james can you explain that for me i don't fully really understand this question i think he's appealing to sura four uh, so I, think, you, I think what they what i meant to say is i misread it too they say if jesus 
Oh, no, maybe I did get that right. If Jesus ever hanged on the cross but didn't die, that falsifies either the Quran or your argument. No, it doesn't, because as I've shown repeatedly, I think a lot of these people haven't actually seen my presentation, perhaps. The Quran supports the Sun theory. It explicitly states they did not kill him through crucifixion, nor was he killed through a spear or, or through any other means, but he was made to appear to them as one like that. So it means that he appeared to them as though he was dead on the cross, which means he was not dead on the cross, but he looked like it, which is a soon theory. You got it. This one from Yahshua the King says, the disciples only fled from the garden, not the cross. Well, no, he was abandoned uh, for his crucifixion. And then you have the Gospel of John. Uh, you have the women at the, uh, at, the, at the cross. None of the 12 are there. I would say it's John Mark who shows up there. He takes Jesus into it. He takes Jesus' mother into his home, and then she's there with him until... Uh, yeah, until she dies. And I would say that's happening in Acts 12, 12, where it's now Mary is now called the mother of John Mark. Uh, and so that, that would be the thing I think. So no, I don't think the 12 were there, but there were other disciples like the women. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Joshua Wooden says, Paul, a hypocrite, he follows Jewish law to guide them to Christ. So they are not in bondage to the law. Law is good. Christ is better and is freedom. Oh, well, I read out the specific wording of 1 Corinthians where he says, the law, I'm not bound by the law, which is completely contradictory to what James says, which is that Jews who accept Jesus are bound by the law. That was the point I was making. And then he publicly repented of modern-day Christian doctrines. You got it. And this one coming in from, do appreciate it, Grays 174 says, the two giant angels carried him, carried him out of the tomb on their shoulders to present him to everyone as having survived the crucifixion. Right. Do either of you know what they're talking about? Nobody? Okay. This one coming in from Joshua Wooden. It says, slander is bad. However, uh, true Islam UK is a stronger debater than TikTok Dan. I don't know who TikTok Dan is. Do you guys know who TikTok Dan is? I know who he's talking about, but let's not talk about it. This one coming in from Carol Kinzer says, question for IP. If allowed, if I didn't receive the Holy Spirit, was I ever really a Christian? If you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, were you ever a Christian? Well, no, because, but I mean, anyone who asks for the Holy Spirit gets the Holy Spirit in Jesus's name. So... If you never had the Holy Spirit, which would be unlikely if you actually were a professing Christian, then I don't I don't see how that follows. So I'd have to know more of the context of what the question specifically is around. You got it. And thanks, Oliver Catwell, for gifting those memberships in the chat. Folks, we do have memberships for the channel. If you haven't yet, check those out. One of the coolest things about any membership is that if we ever put slow mode on for the live chat, because for example, today we have over a thousand uh, over a thousand viewers at one point, is slow mode just to make sure that the moderators can basically weed out anything that's against YouTube terms of service. But if you have a channel membership at Modern Day Debate, you can actually have immunity to slow mode, and you can type in whatever weird stuff you want as fast as you want. Now, if it goes against, you know, TOS, we still have to, you know, delete it. But nonetheless, it'll at least make it harder for the mods. <laughs> but I want to say, folks, thank you so much for being with us. Our guests are linked in the description. 
highly encourage you check out their links. The the debaters are the lifeblood of the channel, folks. They make this fun. They make this a lively place here at Modern Day Debate. So do check out both Inspiring Philosophy and True Islam UK's links in the description box. And that includes, if you're listening later on the podcast, all of our debates are uploaded to the podcast within 24 hours of being live on YouTube. At the podcast description box, you can find those links as well. So I want to say huge thank you to our guest, True Islam UK, and Mike Jones, Inspiring Philosophy. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, James. I've really enjoyed myself and to Michael as well. I really appreciate your time and uh, and your and your energy. Yeah, I, I think you're a very respectful guy. I enjoyed the conversation. That was amazing. Now, folks, I'll be back in just a moment with a post-credits scene, letting you know about coming debates and greeting you in the old live chat. So stick around. And with that, I want to say one last thanks to our guests. I'll be back in just a few moments. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. Amazing. I want to say, folks, thanks so much for being with us tonight. If it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, I want to let you know, first, hit that subscribe button. We have many more debates coming up, and you don't want to miss out on those debates. In particular, you might be wondering, you're like, well, what debates though, James? I'm curious. Well, this Sunday, actually, whether or not Islam is, it's whether or not the Quran is scientific. You don't want to miss that. That's going to be Ozian and Nadir Ahmed debating one-on-one. -on -one. That's this Sunday night. So if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button. We have many more debates coming up. In addition, you may have seen at the bottom left of your screen, I'll show you guys this in just a moment. We have indeed a sponsor for this debate because you might be wondering, well, who's your sponsor, James? What are you talking about? What's the sponsor? Well, what I'm saying is we have, through Modern Day Debate, a deal with Visible Wireless. In particular, for every person that signs up for Visible Wireless, which is, I will show you, it's actually linked in the description box as well as, I'm going to pin it in the old live chat. If you happen to use the visible wireless link you can get unlimited data and unlimited minutes and unlimited text for only 20 bucks a month you guys really it's a great deal if you are paying too much for your wireless which odds are good that you may be because wireless can be expensive i highly encourage you check out that link in the description box or i'm going to pin that in the live chat in just a moment i gotta tell you Folks, save your money. There are a lot of better things that you can spend your money on rather than wireless service for your phone. And one way of saving money is using that link in the description box. For the first 12 months, it's just 20 bucks a month. You guys get a better deal than I get. So for me, I pay $25 a month. And eventually after the first year, it's $25 a month. But for the first month, for the first year, in fact, I didn't even get this for my first year. It's just 20 bucks a month. Crazy cheap. Now, if you're like me, I'm big on being thrifty, being clever, because I'm like, hey, why would I want to spend money on things that I don't need to when I can use them for things that I like? For example, I don't know if you noticed me drinking this A&W diet root beer during this debate. Not a sponsor, not an affiliate. I'll contact, I'll try to get a link from them so we could. Uh, but I got to tell you, I like spending my money on diet soda. And before you warn me about how diet soda will kill me, I've got to tell you, check out that link from Visible Wireless. Let me pull that up on screen so you can see it again. As you can save your money instead of spending however much you're spending, let's say even Wi-Fi, because let's say you're using Wi-Fi at your place. 
and you're like, well, I use Wi-Fi at my house. That's how I, you know, stream YouTube or Netflix, whatever it is you like. That's how I go on my favorite websites like farmersonly.com and all sorts of, you know, what other weird websites you guys hang out on is that you want to save your money. Do that by clicking on that visible wireless link because you also have unlimited hotspot high-speed data with that link. You can cancel your Wi-Fi for where you live. Maybe that's like 45 bucks, 65 bucks a month, whatever it is. You could just say, hey, I'm going to come home when I pick up my little laptop. Like, so right here, I've got my laptop. You can see it's hard to see because of my little blue, the green screen effect. Yeah, there it is. You can see it. So I have my little MacBook here. As you can say, hey, I am going to use my MacBook and watch Netflix, or maybe you're going to use a TV, whatever it is that you like. And you're like, you know, and I'm just going to connect it to my hotspot. And I've got enough data to watch on my TV, YouTube, or whatever else it is. You can do that all the time and just completely cut out your Wi-Fi bill. Because if you're paying 45 or 65 bucks a month for Wi-Fi, like who needs it? Roll it out. Save that money. Use it on things that you like, like diet and W root beer. Or maybe you want to spend it on, you want to save up, save that 65 bucks a month, put it toward a trip, do a fun trip at the end of the year, whatever it is. Highly encourage you check out the link from Visible Wireless. I'm going to pin that at the top of the chat. And I've got to tell you, first, thanks for coming by. I see you there in the old live chat. Hamza Ken, I see you there. Thanks, Batman Inc. for being with us. Glad to see you there. Sim Kia, happy to have you with us. Folks, I've got to tell you, we're excited about the future. We really are. We've got a lot of big stuff we're planning here at Modern Day Debate. I just met someone last week on Zoom to talk about potential collaboration. And we're really excited. Like there are just some big things that we're talking about with Modern Day Debate and big things that I'm learning because I always want to learn. I want to say, hey, how can we make Modern Day Debate better? We're always trying to develop ourselves, grow, refine how we do things, have a better channel overall. I want to say cool thing is during the stream, we actually crossed over from 175 to 176,000 subscribers. So I want to say thank you guys for your support. Seriously, it means more than you know. We are excited. Join us while we are small. This is just the beginning of our story at Modern Day Debate. We are providing a neutral platform so that everybody can make their case on a level playing field. A lot of people will say, hey, I'm all about fairness. I'm all about, I want everybody to have their shot to make their case. I'm I'm neutral. You know, I'm unbiased. They talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, Modern Day Debate actually does it. You can check out our links. We have debates on, you name it, whether or not Bigfoot exists. We have controversial debates on politics and people taking positions that are like, oh, it's like pushing against the boundaries of YouTube in terms of TOS sometimes. This isn't your grandma's debate channel. You know this, folks. If you're new here, now you know it because sometimes we do have topics that are pushing the envelope, not for the sake of pushing the envelope, but because we want to walk the walk and actually give everybody a fair chance. Even those flat earthers, I tell you what, I got to tell you, I got a lot of friends that are flat earthers. I got a lot of friends that are globe earthers. If you're like me, you think the planet is shaped like a banana. I don't know. Whatever you are, we hope you feel welcome. We really do want to give everybody a fair shot. So, hey, you say, 
We're going to let a thousand flowers bloom. We're going to let the chips fall where they may. We are going to have a truly fair debate channel. And I can tell you, folks, thanks to people like you and all of your support, I can see the shares. I check the analytics often. The amounts of shares that we get on our videos is huge. Thanks to people like you sharing it with friends who maybe you have a friend who likes a similar topic because people usually are friends with people who have common interests. This is a great way of helping Modern Day Debate expand, expand its fair platform. You can share it with a friend or maybe a group of friends online. Maybe you've got a Reddit or you've got a Twitter thread that you're a part of. Whatever it is, you can share it there. And we are excited because Modern Day Debate is a barreling locomotive going down the tracks. And no matter how many hurdles are in front of us, we are just going to keep crushing them, just keep going through them. As this, like I said, is just the beginning of our story. Modern Day Debate is going to do big things. Join us as we are small because someday we're going to look back at this stream and we're going to say, wow, that was back when Modern Day Debate had it crashed over 175 to 176,000 subscribers. Man, we we're small back then compared to today. We are looking forward to a bright future. We want to say thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for making this exciting day, crossing over to 176,000. Appreciate that. Oliver Catwell in the live chat says, before Modern Day Debate, I was a deplorable street urchin with no future prospects. Now I'm a despicable street urchin with a hobby. JK, love what you do, James. Thanks, Oliver, for your support. Huge supporter, longtime supporter. Oliver's been here for... I think about five years. Like, I think he's been with us since the very start. I think he was here with us, like when Modern Day Debate really got its big, uh, kind of like big first step. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of people are like, uh, you don't know that Modern Day Debate, to a large degree, was framed on a previous channel called Non Sequitur Show. Now, they would have a lot of interviews and stuff, too. And we were like, well, we're going to have it where it's just like pure debates. It's going to be like literally the only way a position is presented on the channel is if there's an opposing side in the debate as well. We wanted it that way. And we had come from a channel like we're an adaptation of a channel called the Non Sequitur Show that was also a live show that oftentimes did debates like it was common that they would do them. So we do want to say uh, if you remember that, if you've been around with us for that long, that's about as long as it goes, because I would say at that point we were around for maybe like. That was like our eighth month when I remember when the non sequitur show like had a collapse and what happened was people are like, whoa, it just collapsed and there's a fight. And then we hosted a debate. Interestingly, there's I can tell you this from having gone from, you know, uh, zero subscribers to where now we're at 176,000. And also having been in the YouTube space for years watching other creators because I mean, Modern Day Debate is such a it's central node and a huge network of people because Modern Day Debate depends on other people coming on, right? So I have watched many YouTubers and their, you could say, careers and seen that it's extremely rare for a YouTuber to start small and then boom, just explode overnight. That virtually never happens. There's only one person it's happened with that was because uh, Alex Stein had a Twitter video that went viral. It got millions of views. That was pretty like overnight type of success. But that's one out of like everybody. Like all of the creators that we've had on here. If you think of people like David Wood that at one point had like 750,000 subs at his channel. If you think about Destiny who's got almost 750,000 subs now at his channel. 
if you think about people like AP, who's got like, what, 350,000, is that all of those people, it was incremental growth, like these small steps. And so uh, we've had many small steps, but one of our biggest steps, probably the biggest step, but nonetheless, one of many, many steps was then modern day debate. Uh, we hosted a debate on the topic of the non sequitur show having this basically battle, this fight between their two hosts. And Steve, bless his heart, and I'm actually meaning that sincerely, like not like a Southern sarcastic thing. Uh, Steve McRae, he at one point said, hey, he kind of knew that non sequitur show was like taking a beating. Uh, and that basically like, yeah, by that I mean, people were upset with Kyle who was still in control of the non sequitur show. And so Steve McRae was like, hey, Everybody go subscribe to Modern Day Debate. Follow them instead. Kind of what Steve said. And we had like 1,500 subs, which a channel at our size at that time, that was just ginormous. And I was also like one of the biggest growth days we've ever had, period. I think that was actually the biggest one still. So, but nonetheless, let's look at this. If you do the math, 1,500, and that's out of 176,000 subs we have now, that was only let's multiply it by 100 that was only 0.85 percent of our subs so our biggest leap though so this is like youtube generally works like this our biggest leap didn't even get us one percent like our biggest like single day was like whoa 1500 subs in a single day didn't even get us one percent that just shows you how incremental youtube is it really is a game of patience consistency, stick-to-itiveness, whatever you want to call it. But we want to say thank you for being here with us and supporting us. It's just like a lot of things in life. It's like being fit, like being active, being like strong or whatever it is that your goal is there. It's like personal finance. Oh my gosh, personal finance generally is that in my experience. Like it's just a matter of saving little by little when you, you know, as much as you can. And one way of saving is visible wireless. Like I said, folks, what are you doing? I mean, you could save not only because let's say you have unlimited data, text, and calls, plus unlimited hotspot data, uh, which is a good deal. Let's say you've got it and it's like 30, you're like, ah, James, I'm at Mint Mobile. I've got that for 35 or 30 bucks. Hey, good for you. But I mean, you can save $10 a month if you switch over to visible using our referral link, it's just 20 bucks a month, the first 12 months. Then you can even cancel your Wi-Fi at your house and you could save another, let's say $55. So then you're saving $65 per month. Let's do the math. 65 times 12 is 780 bucks. Like that's a good chunk of cash you can save just with this single switch. It's amazing. So Got to tell you, I want to say thanks for being with us, though. I see you there in the old live chat. I want to say hello to you and want to say thank you guys for all of your support. So first, Pete, I see you there in the old live chat. Thanks for your support. Joshua, thanks for your being with us. Thanks for your super chat there. I see that. Swampy Poobs, Cubes, good to see you. Mauricio, Chuman, Babadilla, thanks for coming by. Appreciate your uh, being with us, buddy. He's actually, you guys, if you guys see Mauricio in the chat, uh, give him a huge prop, give him a huge thanks, a, a huge like, hey, way to go, Mauricio. 
because Mauricio has transformed this channel. So you guys, I don't know if you've noticed, but Modern Day Debate has had like monstrous growth in the last few months. A big reason for that is, and also like I'd say over the last year, actually, we've had like, oh man, how many subs do we gain in the last year? Let me look this up really quick. Is that in the last 12 months, uh, this is way more than we knew. The last year has been like our biggest growth year. We had 83,000 subscribers just in the last 12 months. So that just shows you like prior to that, I think we usually got like 30,000 on average a year. Mauricio was a big reason for that. Uh, uh, credit to others as well. But I want to say Mauricio has been making us these epic shorts that have done so well in the algorithm and they introduced so many new people to modern database. So huge credit, Mauricio, fantastic, man. You've done so well. And I'm so grateful for all your help that 85 was like, just crazy that modern day debate has just transformed in the last year. Echo, I see you there in the old live chat. Thanks for being with us. Sim Kla, thanks for being with us. I think now I actually pronounced it right. Thanks for your patience with me. My sister's keeper. Good to see you there again. Glad to have you back. Mr. Creenan, thanks for coming by. Anathema, good to have you. As well as Hannah Anderson, Kurt and Jungle Jargon, good to see you. Another, another longtime viewer, Jungle Jargon and XM Music. Thanks for coming by. I see you there in the old live chat. Hans Sevenson, thanks for coming by. Glad to have you with us. Level Earth, thanks for dropping in. <clears throat> Level Earth says the Flat Earth got this channel to where it is. Just remember that. Thanks for that. That's interesting. Jerry, Jerry Johnson says, uh, let's see. Glad to have you here, Jerry. Kat, thanks for coming by. As well as Shoresh Fathi. Am I saying it right? Glad to have you with us. Alex Sterling, glad to have you here. As well as Contrarian420, happy to have you with us. I appreciate you. And let's see here. Leo Whitmer, glad to have you here. His message, happy to have you with us. Kevin Howell, thanks for being here. Jerry Johnson, glad to have you. Quick in, happy to have you here. Chad Dad, thanks for dropping in. Want to say thanks, everybody. I'm going to let you go in just a moment as I'm going to rest a little bit. I'm going to see. I can't. I felt like I, I thought I heard thunder. Is that supposed to be rain on the, according to the weather uh, forecast? But I don't know. I could have sworn I heard thunder and wind. But I want to say thanks for coming by. You guys make this fun. Thanks for all your support of Modern Day Debate. It means more than you know. We're excited about the future. Next debate this Sunday. So that's less than 48 hours away. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button as you don't want to miss the debates that are coming out at this channel because it's going to be amazing. I want to say thanks, everybody. Love you. Keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable, and we'll see you at the next debate.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.